0: I'm David Scandura. I'm Justice Burkett. And today we're here to find out, is Dune Part 1, the greatest movie ever made?
1: Arrakis is a rock is. And the desert takes the weak.
0: Welcome to The Greatest Movie Ever Made, the show where we watch a movie and tell you if it's the greatest movie ever made.
2: Bless the maker and his water. Bless, bless the coming and going of him. May his passage cleanse the world. David's looking at me, being like, "Are you going to do the whole thing?" May he bless and keep the world for his people. Uh, it's not. That's not the whole thing. I didn't do it right. That's fine. A movie that is so <laughs> thoroughly entertaining and compelling that while you're watching, it, it's the only thing that matters in
0: the
1: world.
0: Good job, though.
2: Yeah, you got most of it. It's just right off the dome. I didn't have it in front of me.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm David Gandura. Joined as always by my co-host and actor, who is disappointed that he did not get a callback for his Baron Harkonnen art condition.
1: <laughs> just as Rukin.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes, I do look like a Harkonnen in this movie because the creative choice that uh, Villeneuve and, and the design team on this, the, the production team on this uh, movie has made is that all the Harkonnens are bald. <laughs> they seem to be completely hairless. Like none of them even have like eyebrows or facial hair or body hair of any kind. Um, but it is... The lack of head hair is, of course, the most striking, uh, you know, kind of immediate visual. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like I'm a clear choice for a Harkonnen in, in these movies. I can, I can, you know, get rid of all the other hair, too. But, I, you know, I already, I already shaved my head. Um, anyway, how are you doing, David? I'm good.
0: Uh, I don't have much to say. I ate four hot dogs yesterday, uh, so I'm
2: feeling good and uh my feeling good the day after you ate four hot dogs is better than doing better than anyone (laughs) could expect (laughs)
0: um and my media recommendations are i'm reading dune (laughs) <laughs> and I'm listening to music that reminds me of Dune.
2: <laughs> so you're fully immersing yourself in Dune.
0: Yeah, I'm listening to Advetic uh, songs by Ohm, and um, also listening to the album From Agony to Transcendence by the death metal band Nefren Ka, yeah. who exclusively sing about Dune.
2: Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well. I have... Uh, had a good week, but I do definitely feel like the post the post show because we, we had the show that we talked about um, on the last few episodes. I definitely feel the post post show like um, fatigue a little bit where sometimes like when I'm in a show and then it ends, I have a, a hard time uh, going back to the level of like motivation to do all the stuff that didn't end when the show ended. <laughs> so I'm dealing with a little bit of that, but I'm I'm still doing pretty good. Um, And yeah, for Media Rex, uh, I don't know if you've given it a listen yet or not, but um, Chelsea Wolf, uh, an artist that we both enjoy, um, released a new album last month uh, called She Reaches Out to She Reaches Out to She, (laughs) I believe is the correct title. Um, and, uh, I gave it, I gave it a listen this week and, I uh, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I also watched a found footage movie directed by Bobcat Gold, Goldthwaite <laughs> called Willow Creek, which is a Bigfoot found footage movie. And, uh, it was stupid and I enjoyed it quite a bit. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's, it's sort of a blatant ripoff of the Blair Witch Project, um, but with Bigfoot. <laughs> which... I uh, was not intentional, allegedly, on Bob, Bobcat Goldthwaite's part, um, although he has been made aware of it and has, like, kind of jokingly referred to Willow Creek as the Blair Squatch Project <laughs> in some interviews. Um, so if you like Blair Witch and you want to see a dumb ripoff where uh, the monster is Bigfoot, uh you check it out it's, it's it's a fun little fun little found footage movie uh yeah so that's it for me thanks for those recommendations you're welcome you know what you are so welcome <laughs> <laughs> i was so delighted to share those recommendations with you david <laughs> all right fuck that shit let's talk about dune <laughs> let's talk about uh Denis villeneuve's dune part one uh, based on the, the half of the novel by Frank Herbert <laughs> based on probably a little bit less than half of the novel by Frank Herbert. Yeah. I think where it ends is slightly before the half. I think so. Of
0: um, so we've both read the book. Yeah. What is your relationship with the book? Cause I think we kind of read it around the same time.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I think I read it a little after you because I'm pretty sure you reading it was one of the things that prompted me to to read it um and it's it it was a combination of like I had seen you posting about it um and some other people who uh, I'm friends with on like social media I'd seen them talking about it um and I know a lot of people were reading it in advance of the movie coming out right um so that's when I read it was in like uh end of 2020 to early 2021 I think is when I read it Um, And it was it was very much a combination of like, okay, like a lot of people I know are reading this and it would be fun to be part of the discourse on it. (laughs) Um, And also the movies coming out. And I'm interested in the movie. I was interested in the movie because uh, I like a lot of Denis Villeneuve's other movies. Um, There's a lot of actors that I really like in this movie. So I was like, okay, like, I'll probably want to go see that. But I think I want to read the book first. Um, so I read a book, <laughs> which was a monumental achievement <laughs> for me, <laughs> um, does not happen often. Uh, greatly enjoy the book. I've still only read it all the way through the once. Um, it is a book where sometimes I'll, uh, like go back to it and like read a specific chapter just cause like, I, I want it fresh in my brain, <laughs> you know, but I've only sat down, um, and, and read it front to back, uh, one time um when I say sat down it sounds like I did it in one sitting I did it over the course of several months yeah (laughs) um but yeah uh really really enjoyed it love the book uh started the sequel Dune Messiah several times and my natural inclination to not read has been too strong and I haven't been able to make it very far into Messiah yet but if Denis gets his uh his third installment in this trilogy that he's planning to make and he ends up making a dune messiah movie i will definitely end up reading it before that comes out because um similarly i want to have the book under my belt before seeing that movie which i hope happens uh david tell me about your relationship with the dune books so i bought the book a long time
0: ago and like a lot of books that i buy it sat on my shelf (laughs) for years and collected dust yeah um And I had tried reading it a couple of times and would stall out within the first few pages because of all of the funny weird words. (laughs) And then in uh, 2020, I sat down and I was like, all right, I'm doing it. I'm going to read Dune. You're doing it. The movie's coming out. I'm (laughs) doing it. Um, I'm I'm a fan of Villeneuve's movies as well. I've seen most of his movies once. Uh, I've seen Dune the most out of his movies. Um, and there's a, there's a couple that I haven't prisoners is a big, a big gap in my, uh, Villeneuve knowledge. Um, but I've seen some of his early, uh, French Canadian films and stuff like that too. Um, great filmmaker definitely need to go back to his other movies as well, but I was really looking forward to this movie, read the book in about two weeks and I did not think it was good. Interesting. But I had a great time reading it. Right. Which was such an interesting experience to have with a book as opposed to a movie. Because there's plenty of, like, so bad it's good movies that we could talk about that uh, are technically not very good, um, but I have a good time with. Never had that sort of experience with a book. Yeah. And I sat on it for a while. I watched uh, the Lynch film. I watched the sci-fi channel miniseries of Dune. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then... Before the movie came out, I reread the book and really enjoyed it. Really had a legitimately good time with it and thought it was a lot better than uh, I originally thought the first time.
1: Right.
2: Yeah.
0: And then I read the rest of the series. I uh, haven't read any of the books that were written by his son, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. Those, uh, you know, the fandom does not like those books, but <laughs> yeah. I've thought about giving them a try. Um, and the, the rest of the series is uh, really interesting Really weird, uh, a little inconsistent in places, but uh, I, I found Messiah really compelling and, like, almost essential to reading uh, along with Dune. Um, and uh, then the movie came out, and I saw the movie five times yeah. in that, like, first month. Yeah. It, is, it is the most that I had watched a movie, uh, like, in theaters or around its release, probably since, like, The Dark Knight.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: and it released, you know, the same day on HBO Max. So there would be times where I would go see
2: it at the theater and then come home and <laughs> just watch, just it, watch again. it again. <laughs> yeah, this was only my third time with this. I saw it once in the theater, and then I got it on Blu-ray and watched it again uh, last year, and then watched it again for this record. Um, I greatly enjoyed the first viewing, um, and I was interested in going back to it but i didn't have the immediate need to <laughs> rewatch it the, the compulsion that you did <laughs> i did
0: very intentionally take a break i think yeah. i watched it in 2022 and then didn't watch it all the rest of that year didn't watch it at all last year got the opportunity to see it in IMAX earlier this year about a month ago mm-hmm. and that was my first time going back uh since then um and then re- rewatched it uh last night for this yeah so this is probably viewing uh seven or eight at this point hell Um, yeah i own it on vhs (laughs) you do it's a it's a working vhs yeah it's from 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 one of those uh it's from caddy video they're like a custom they make custom VHSs of, of new movies and they make really limited runs of them and uh (laughs) it's it's sitting on my shelf (laughs) i did i did check it i didn't watch it the whole way through on vhs but uh yeah i i don't think that i'm not the biggest dune fan neither of us are the biggest dune fan in the world let's get that out of the way no yeah for the book nerds who are
2: listening right um for anyone who's a bigger dune nerd than we are we we might you know not talk about something or you know say something that's slightly incorrect because we haven't read to all of the fucking expanded universe the horse shit (laughs) um but you know yeah we still we've we've still uh dipped our toe in at least well i've dipped my toe in. you've you've gone a little deeper than that
0: yeah it's it's a it's a universe that i find really interesting and compelling and nothing has
2: really uh gripped me the way that this has in a while um I want to go back to one of the things you said about when you were reading the book for the first time, which is that initially you found it difficult to read because Frank Herbert just throws incomprehensible sci-fi bullshit terminology at you and refuses to explain what it means. Uh, The first time I read the book, I loved it immediately. And I've said this before, but I want to say it on the show. (laughs) said it before to you and also on social media but i just (laughs) wanted to voice this on the podcast um i think the book and the movie are play best if you approach it uh like a like an idiot (laughs) which is how i approached the book the first time and um, that's also uh, I feel like helpful when you're watching the movie to just be like, people are gonna be saying shit that you don't, you don't understand, and instead of intellectualizing it and being like, let me try and figure out what this means, just be like, okay, Jesserit, got it. I don't know what the fuck that is, but I assume I will eventually have an idea, and chances are you will. And any terminology that does not get explained, where you're like, the movie or the book ends, and you're like, still don't know what that was. Just be okay with it. Just do not ask questions. That's what I had to learn. That's <laughs> yes. what I had to learn while reading. Yeah.
0: The other thing that was really challenging for me that this movie, I think wisely avoids is that the book is written in, um, I believe it's, it's third person omniscient. Yeah. So multiple characters uh can be expressing their 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 innermost thoughts and emotions on the same page yes in the same paragraph switching back and forth very quickly <laughs> yes yeah uh, that it's you know it's something that comes up in lynch's adaptation where we have to stop the movie so that the character can have a voiceover of the thoughts yeah in their inner, head. inner monologue yeah they're in a monologue yeah <laughs> that was what was really challenging for me mm. um but yeah it's one of the most interesting sci-fi universes that i've encountered. And after reading it and seeing the movie and understanding it, you realize that we've been ripping this story off for decades at this point.
2: I, I don't know what you mean, David. Yeah. Who, who's been who's been ripping off Doom?
0: Oh, oh, I just I, I just decided to set my my space movie on a, a desert planet with a young
2: boy who undergoes the hero's journey. But it's but it's totally different from Dune because instead of Paul, which is a name from the Bible, I chose Luke, which is a different name from the Bible. <laughs> and and he also has a magic sister, but her name's not Aaliyah, it's Leia. It's totally different. <laughs> sue me, Sue me Frank Herbert. See if, we'll see who wins in court, you broke ass bitch. <laughs> Oh, so- sorry, Frank. I
0: can't hear you over the fact that you're fucking dead, and also that I'm a billionaire.
2: <laughs> I'm just imagining Frank. Her- I did. S- I did read a, th- a th- come inter- over here and
0: suck my dick while I sit on my throne <laughs> made of Darth Vader voice
2: changers. Suck my sandworm. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh. But uh. Yeah. I. I was reading an interview with uh Frank Herbert from. Uh, Like, 77 when Star Wars came out. And uh, he hadn't seen Star Wars yet, but he had heard about some of the similarities. And he was... (laughs) he took it it seems like he took it uh pretty uh gentlemanly right he he wasn't like what the fuck like this is a huge ripoff um like he was pretty chill about it but he did in the interview he was like i will try very hard not to sue (laughs) which i thought was funny and i just imagine him like he's he goes to see star wars with uh with beverly his wife at the time and he's like bev Bev, I can't believe it. Bev, don't, he's, he's got psychic powers. <laughs> Beverly. <laughs>
0: the, uh, the last song on Iron Maiden's album, peace of mind is called to tame a land and it's about Dune. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think the bass player, Steve Harris wrote it and he wrote to the Frank Herbert estate, uh, or, or he wrote to Frank Herbert's people, you know, Frank, yeah. Frank Herbert was still alive at the time. Uh, He wrote to them about their permission for him to call the song Dune. And the letter he got back was something like Frank Herbert doesn't like rock bands, especially rock bands like Iron Maiden, (laughs) which is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, Frank Herbert, um, interested in environmentalism, wrote wrote this book as a commentary on uh, religious extremism and fanaticism and fascism. Uh, Also. Kind of a dick.
2: Yeah, <laughs> by by uh, by many accounts, he was uh, something of an unpleasant person. <laughs> I think he, uh, I think he like disowned his uh, his son, one of his sons who came out as gay. Yes. Uh,
0: yeah. Not cool. Not cool. Bad. In- interesting guy. Yeah. What interesting guy.
2: Yeah, and also he was like distant cousins with uh, with Joe McCarthy, and was like buddy buddy with him for a little bit, but then to Frank Herbert's credit. Once the blacklisting stuff started in the McCarthy era, he was like, hey, what the fuck, man? And and stopped talking to his cousin (laughs) over that. Um, So, I mean, I guess good for you, but also, you know, maybe you shouldn't have been homophobic to your own son. (laughs) Um, You know, mixed bag with old Frank. Also, just what a horny little weirdo. Oh, man. This ain't even the, the book is very horny. I, I've heard some of the, the stuff about the sequels. Even hornier. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, And yeah, I mean, but it, it is, it is hilarious how much modern sci-fi owes to, to literally just one book. Yeah. Like, it's like, we have a generation of people, multiple generations of people at this point, whose like whole idea of sci-fi is like heavily informed by star Wars. And you can trace a direct line to most of the major ideas in Star Wars just to Dune right and,
0: and the uh the failed adaptation of the film in the 70s from Alejandro Jodorowsky yeah uh that influenced hugely so many sci-fi sci-fi
2: movies right we wouldn't have alien without it yeah
0: we had hr giger working on that we had dan o bannon who mm-hmm. went on to do alien ron cobb who also worked on alien uh that that movie's another that movie that never happened uh, is another huge, uh, like, nexus point for all of the science fiction ideas yeah. and aesthetics that have taken off since then. You know
2: you know what? This is making me realize we would not have uh, one of the most divisive films, probably the most divisive film in our friendship, Event Horizon, if we did not have Alien, right? That's it's, sure. it, You can trace a clear path from yeah. Alien to Event Horizon. Because Event Horizon is, what if Alien was shitty? <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> and we wouldn't have... Uh, we wouldn't have alien without Yodorowski's uh failed uh dune project, which of course we wouldn't have without frank Frank Herbert writing the book. So thank you, Frank Herbert for the masterpiece that is event horizon <laughs> um anyway, let's talk about the movie justice <laughs> okay, I think
0: because part two is coming out, mm-hmm. we shouldn't spoil anything that happens in the second half of the book,
2: okay, yeah, sure.
0: I think we'll just we'll cover the material that is. Present in this movie. Great. Also, we're fans of the book, and we will probably talk about things from the book as they come out, come up. But we're not going to sit here and do like a one-to-one comparison. Right.
2: This isn't a podcast about Dune the book, despite how much we just talked about Frank Herbert and the novel Dune. Um, we're mostly going to be focusing on on the movie. So yeah, um, we're not going to be giving you the whole play-by-play of Frank Herbert's Dune. (laughs) (laughs) So the uh, the movie opens with a prologue.
0: From Chani, played by Zendaya, who does not appear until the end of the film, that sets up um, the world of Arrakis and the uh, economy of spice harvesting that runs the Empire, which we get some more information about that's kind of drip-fed to us throughout the movie.
2: Yeah, and if you're already confused... Uh, just don't worry about it eventually some of this will make sense <laughs> um, but yeah uh, it's, it's basically a situation yeah where uh, these are um, you know the the indigenous population of uh, Arrakis um, is having their uh, world ravaged by yeah resource extraction which is an idea that uh, you know w- we're familiar with from uh many real world examples <laughs> many many such cases um, many such cases uh you know, in the Middle East historically, which uh is it's no accident that Frank Herbert uh very heavily based the fremen culture, on um uh arabic uh cultures right and the fremen language on the arabic language which this uh movie you know adapts directly from the book basically um so yeah it's the, these are space muslims and uh spice is both uh oil it's both both petroleum and also it's psilocybin
0: <laughs> yeah it's um it's a it's a hallucinogenic sub- substance that allows the navigators of the spacing guild to do the complex calculations required to transport these huge ships across across space. Right, right. It's, it's the complex calculations and like reflexes required for interstellar interstellar travel. Yes, you
2: have to do space shrooms in order to be able to do math complicated enough to travel between the stars. Yeah. <laughs> and and Arrakis is the only planet where is the only planet where it's found. So
0: if if you control that planet, you essentially control the universe.
1: Yeah,
2: it's like having a monopoly on fucking gasoline.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this movie opens with the the Harkonnens have been oppressing Arrakis. And then one day, by imperial decree, they all leave.
2: Yep. The emperor says, uh, you know, Harkonnens you get lost you're you're out of here you're out of the spice game and it's time for somebody new to take over which is the atreides yes uh,
0: so we open on castle caladan on the planet of caladan which is the homeworld of house atreides yeah in the year 10191 yes but actually justice but actually it's more like 20,000 years in the future ah. because the uh, it, in the books, it's 10,191 AG, yes, which is after guild, yes. So the spacing guild is founded in the year 10,000 and then they reset the calendar, yes. So we're really talking something that's 20,000 years in the future,
1: yes.
2: We're halfway to Warhammer 40k. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to put my fucking book nerd hat on for yes. a minute, yes. Uh, there's also a thing, uh, from, from the book and from some of the other books in the series, it's explained a little bit deeper, they don't really mention it in the movie at all which i think is a strong choice because it would be distracting and it doesn't actually matter for the story that they're telling um but there there is a thing uh called the butlerian jihad that happened at some point in the past in in the books and like i've said i've only read the first book and i don't think they tell you specifically how long ago the butlerian jihad was but at some point in the distant past essentially terminator happened (laughs) (laughs) Where, uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day specifically, (laughs) right, the Judgment Day situation happened, um, where, uh, you know, Sarah and John Connor weren't able to stop it, and the robots, uh, basically almost fully eradicated humanity, um, like, there was a war between, you know, thinking computers, thinking machines... And uh, and humanity and as a result of that, humanity did eventually win the war, but they were like almost completely driven to extinction by the machines, right? And so in the world of Dune, now you know twenty thousand years from from our current present day, right? Um, they don't they have future technology like futuristic technology, but they don't have computers. It's all like really analog future technology, yeah. Um, because Uh, there's like a a rule in the religion that dominates the society which one of their like 10 commandments is basically uh thou shalt not make a computer in the image of a human mind um, essentially to avoid butlerian jihad round two yeah (laughs) right um so all of that nerdy horse shit to say uh this is a very interesting sci-fi world um that we're being introduced to and you kind of get this immediately in this movie um where it's like even though it's very far flung in the future these people are also kind of living like it's the middle ages um which is very interesting
0: yeah it's a really interesting uh setting uh, and there are guns and stuff like that in this this movie as well um
2: but everyone's mostly using swords right um which again to put on my nerd hat is yes. is because uh it, in the book they explain that if you shoot one of the body shields or like the they're not just body shields they also have them on like buildings and ships and stuff but if you shoot one of the shields with a laser gun it can make like a nuclear sized explosion happen (laughs) like there's some way that the laser and the fucking shield interact where everything will just fucking explode um and then also uh the shields block anything that moves super fast so like a projectile just like a regular bullet would like bounce off the shield right and the only way that you can penetrate the shield which they show uh in a scene that's coming up in a little bit here is basically like you have to move through the shield slowly uh in order to penetrate it and then you can fucking like stab somebody or Mm -hmm. whatever um, So, uh, so yeah, it, it is very kind of like medieval, just due to the rules of the the world. Yeah, right.
0: and and all out war is extreme, an extremely costly uh, and uh, destructive move for for one house to make against another. Right. Because everyone has access to atomic weapons. Right. There's stuff like the the Holtzman effect, which is the uh, the, the 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 shields and the interacting with the lasers and stuff like that. So a lot of the way that Uh, warfare is conducted in this universe is through sabotage and assassinations and poison or in uh, as we're about to see in the course of this movie just like an elaborate scheme that is set up to uh, to basically wipe out this entire house
2: plans within plans within plans
0: (laughs) yeah Um, so uh, the house of atreides is set to inherit uh, control of arrakis by Imperial decree, this is something that they are aware is a trap, um but they also know that it's like a big opportunity yes it's, for a, their it's a
2: trap that they if they manage to wiggle themselves out of uh then they stand to benefit enormously from right so it's a it's a risky situation um but also they they kind of can't say no because the emperor is is saying you have to do this right so it's also they're they're also kind of stuck, right where it's like you know. The emperor is saying like, would you do this? But what he really means is you have no choice. You will be doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the, uh, the ceremony. Beverly, there's a galactic emperor. Beverly, get my lawyer on the phone. <laughs> 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 no, you see, you see, it's, it's different, Frank. You got no, you got no case, buddy, because my emperor, he's called Emperor Palpatine. Whereas your guys called the Padisha Emperor It's totally different. It's just a case of parallel thinking, Frank. So why don't you take that lawsuit and shove it up your ass? Frank, I got away
0: with selling a cardboard box (laughs) to kids with pictures of action figures on it (laughs) in Christmas of 1977. You think you're gonna
2: defeat me? You're nothing, baby. (laughs) Who's the quiz-ass now, bitch? Frank, Frank, I already told you. There's a big mouth in the desert on Tatooine, but it's not a worm under there. It's a sarlacc pit. You don't know what it looks like under the sand, buddy. That's not a worm at all. How are Paul Atreides Halloween costumes going for you, huh? You selling any of those? Hey, buddy, I I saw you at the convention last week. You look like you're doing pretty rough. If you need a helping hand, just let me know. I'd be willing to write you a check. Oh, hey, Frank. Good to see you. Oh, sorry, I can't stay in chat. I have to go get dinner with
0: Steven Spielberg (laughs) and Francis Ford Coppola.
2: (laughs) I heard heard about... uh... Uh, That Yodorowsky guy, he was going to adapt your book into a movie. How'd that go for you? Anyway, uh, I'll say hi to Steven for (laughs) (laughs) you. So
0: our first really big scene here is the ceremony to uh, transfer power of Arrakis to House Atreides. Uh, And this is where we get a really good sense of, like, the sense of scale in this movie with um the we see the the guild highliner which is these huge these
2: huge guild ships uh it's like it's a giant tube in space and yes. it's awesome yes it looks like the way space travel works in this adaptation of dune is if you go through the tube you're somewhere else in space there's a shot where like you can see through the tube you can see caladan right um but the it doesn't continue past the edge of the ship the the hole in the middle of the tube is like a portal, like a wormhole that takes you somewhere else in the universe. And the the guild navigator is just doing a shit ton of math to make sure that he doesn't um, put you in the event horizon hell dimension instead. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens if you don't get the guild navigators <laughs> enough spice you, <laughs> you just go where the event horizon you end, up, you end up in that hell dimension from event horizon <laughs> <laughs> you come you, you come back fucking holding your own eyeballs and being like liberate to teme <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> now that is a dune spin-off that i would enjoy <laughs> a um a uh a crossover event that i would enjoy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just a, a side story in the dune universe where a ship accidentally ends up <laughs> in the hell dimension yeah uh, sam kneels there being like do you see <laughs> anyway yeah
0: it's not really clear to me how it works um because i kind of think that I- i kind of thought that too while i was watching but i've never quite been able to tell and uh but they're they're these 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 huge tube ships they look amazing and then we see the smaller ship that is is completely uh you know the 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 highliner itself completely dwarfs it and then we see it land this huge like sphere of a ship and it's also huge um and uh, yeah, I think this movie has just a great sense of scale and design, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of trademark Villeneuve. If you watch Blade Runner twenty forty nine, this is yeah, this is stuff he's already done.
2: Too. Yeah, and Arrival too. The I feel like the sense of scale and um a lot of kind of similar um brutalist production design in Arrival as well with the alien ships and that and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I want to call out this actor who's
0: playing the Herald of the Change. Yes, uh, his name is Benjamin Clementine. He's primarily a musician. This is his first movie role. And this is just a small, nothing. It's one scene. Bit part. Yeah. Uh, It's one scene. He's on screen for like four minutes. He's basically just here to, you know, carry out the emperor's wishes to uh, change over control of Arrakis. And he puts
2: everything into this performance. He does. It rocks. It rocks. Um uh yeah he's got like this huge ass scroll he's in like the ceremonial outfit and he looks very physically impressive and then yeah the performance just matches it it's really it's a really uh good little um bit part Yeah. yeah he delivers every line like
0: it's the royal shakespeare company
2: yeah he's so good which by the way shakespeare isn't a bad comparison for the vibe of this movie in general it does feel a lot of the performances but also sort of the and some of this is down to Frank Herbert's plot yeah. from the book. A lot of it feels very Shakespearean tragedy, like palace intrigue. Most of what's happening isn't direct action that you see. It's a lot of people talking about ways that they're going to um you know get revenge on each other or fuck each other over right and it's like all of these interconnected bloodlines baron harkonnen calls leto cousin at one point it just it all feels kind of very shakespeare to me so i think the shakespearean uh performance right that um that he's doing but also that a couple of other actors i feel like are sort of tapping into that kind of classical performance thing um really fits the the tone yeah i think
0: i think uh Oscar Isaac as well. Is yeah. T- tapping into that. Like you said, and Rebecca
2: Ferguson, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, and, uh, cause I love his response to this declaration, uh, that the, the herald of the change makes that now we're transferring control of the planet. And, uh, he says, uh, you know, warehouse of treaties There is no call that we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Yep. And again, just delivering ev- every single one of those lines with, uh, such, uh, specific intent and yeah. purpose uh in a way that's also very grandiose yeah and very epic in a kind of shakespearean way
2: yeah so the handoff uh has happened and we get a little bit of stuff here early in the movie with uh, House Atreides on Caladan, right? As they're preparing to take over Arrakis. Um, we meet kind of our main cast of characters on the Atreides side. Uh, we meet Paul, who's played by uh, Timothée Chalamet. Or is it, I've heard it's Timothée. It's Timothée in, in French. I. I but but i just I'm, say but, Timothy. Yeah. I, I, it's insane to me that Timothée is how you say that name. <laughs> um i i almost want to exclusively use the correct pronunciation because i find it hilarious and not because it's correct (laughs) um but uh yeah so so timothy is uh paul atreides our our uh protagonist right and then yeah the aforementioned oscar isaac is duke leto his dad and then we got uh rebecca ferguson as lady jessica his mom um and we're also introduced to some of our, our other folks here uh gurney halleck played by josh brolin and uh duncan idaho played by jason momoa so that's kind of like the the group that we're following here at first on the atreides side and we get a few scenes kind of introducing each of those characters how do you feel about momoa in this movie so i
0: know he was kind of a controversial choice among fans of the book yeah because duncan idaho has a very small role in the first book but he's kind of like boba fett where <laughs> the fans really latched onto him and really liked him so um this isn't necessarily a spoiler that that really matters, but uh Frank Herbert brings him back yeah. for the for the subsequent books. Yeah. Um and uh I, I've heard that he's he's a lot of people wish they had cast a different actor. Um I kind of love that it. it's Jason
2: Jason Momoa's dude's rocking his way through this movie. Yes. He I I mostly like what he's doing. There are definitely some moments where I'm like, it feels like he's on a very different wavelength than a lot of the other actors. Like, it feels like his performance is is tuned to a different frequency from everybody else mm-hmm. some of the time. And it, it bothers me very slightly in a few moments, and the rest of the time it's fine.
0: Yeah, there's moments where the dialogue throughout the film uh, feels a, a hair too contemporary or modern or right and, and not the way you would expect people to talk 20,000 years in
2: the future in space
0: right <laughs> and some of that comes through with Momoa
2: yeah some of it comes through with with Timotei as well yeah some of his deliveries I'm like that sounded really 2021 stop <laughs> saying it like that <laughs> stop
0: saying his name like that I hate it <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's how it's said
0: David <laughs> um one of the things I really like about duncan idaho and jason momoa though is how this movie demonstrates his relationship with paul yeah there's only there's only a few scenes that they have together um but you get a really good sense of how close they are
2: yeah and and a lot of that's down to momoa's kind of big charismatic thing that he's doing here yeah where he's like you know slapping him on the shoulder and being like you're beefing up and shit yeah um yeah um so anyway so uh then we go to a little fight training sequence uh where josh brolin as gurney Halleck is introduced and uh this is where we're we're talking about the the shield thing with the swords that's Mm -hmm. demonstrated here um they do a fun little bit of uh of fight choreo when they're um you know gurney's training him um and he's he's trying to make sure that paul's like ready to be somewhere as dangerous as Arrakis is kind of the idea yeah. it's like warning him about the dangers that are going to be there
0: yeah it's not really explored here but Gurney Halleck has a past with the Harkonnens he was uh, a slave for many years with the Harkonnens and Paul doesn't quite understand how dangerous the situation is right and and Gurney is really like no you need to be ready yeah I have you haven't met Harkonnens before I have they're yeah. human it's humans they're brutal um, and You're brutal, brutal. <laughs> I think I think Brolin does
2: a great job with Gurney Halleck. As well. I love Josh Brolin in this movie. Also, he is crazy jacked for, yeah, yeah. for a 56-year-old man. Yeah. He in this uh like fight training sequence he's wearing like a a t-shirt with like fitted sleeves that are fitted very well to his arms and i was like man josh brolin is fucking huge and i know that that's like not a novel observation he was thanos and i know that they cgi'd his him onto a big purple body right but it's already because he had the face of a man who is enormous and muscled <laughs> um and the voice um uh, but uh but yeah i was just looking at him and i was like man what a fucking you know uh Silver Fox, a fucking beefed up silver daddy. <laughs> um, but, and I love him in this movie. I think his yeah. performance is great. In uh, the books, Gurney Halleck is characterized as like a
0: warrior poet. Yeah. And he plays an instrument called the balise which I am very angry is not in this movie, Denis. Yeah,
2: but it might be in the next one.
0: I hope so. It better be. It better be. Yeah. Um, I guess there was a scene, but they, they cut it and right. uh, Denis didn't release any of the deleted scenes from this movie. But what I will say about Josh Brolin is... His performance uh, still has that element to it of of the kind of warrior poet spirit, where there's moments where he's very aggressive and very intense, but also moments where he can be uh, kind of wistful and uh, jovial and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. And it's really fun to see him. There's there's points in the movie where he's quoting something mm-hmm. to himself. Um. And, uh, you see that little, like, spark on his face that I would expect from, like, the Gurney Halleck that I read about.
2: Yeah, I think he's a good fit for the character, both for, like, the, for what the movie needs him to do, and also, yeah, like, kind of a faithful, faithful performance, uh, to, to how the character's portrayed in the book as well. Yeah, some, some visitors show up, (laughs) and they are, uh, ladies in terrifying hats and veils, (laughs) and, uh, these are the Bene Gesserit, um, and uh, they they pay a little visit here. Uh, Lady Jessica, Rebecca, who's played by Rebecca Ferguson, wakes up uh, Timotei in the middle of the night <laughs> um, and is like, hey, come with me. There's something you got to do. And this is the fucking Gom Jabbar, man. <laughs> yeah, this is the scene that opens the book. Yep. Um, and
0: uh, I love that we get some more background and other scenes that lead up to this in the movie. It feels like a really big moment. Essentially, what's been happening is Paul Atreides has been having dreams. Yeah. And he's been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis.
2: Yes, he is. Uh, he's having dreams about Zendaya, which has never happened to me, but I imagine has happened to many men. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love
0: the 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 way that this scene feels, the atmosphere of this moment. Um, the Bene Gesserit ship lands in the rain and we don't see it. We just see the lights of it and like mm. the outline of it. Uh, and uh, Hans Zimmer's score, which I'm sure we'll talk about in, in much more detail, is very dramatic, very spooky and intense here. Um, and also the Benny Gesserit witch, uh, the Reverend Mother, played by Charlotte Rampling. Yeah. Um, I think this performance is great. Yep. I think the costuming is also great. Yep. She has this veil over her face that looks like a spider web and i think that's how it's described in the book yeah and it really obscures her face Uh, and she's basically here to give this test to paul
2: yes uh to to see if he's human (laughs) um which is an idea from the book basically it's like do you have enough control over your do you have enough self-control right to be entrusted with great power is basically what the test is trying to determine right um and what the test is is he puts his hand in a box and she puts a poison needle to his neck and uh if he takes his hand out of the box he's fucking dead and what's in the box david pain (laughs) it rocks so hard it's the this sequence uh is pretty much exactly how i imagined it when i was reading the book yeah It they really capture this scene from the book perfectly um, and, yeah, it uh, it rules. It's yeah. great. Um, one thing that I really love about this scene is Rebecca
0: Ferguson. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, essentially, Rebecca Ferguson is a Bene Gesserit. She's yes. part of this order. Yep. And the book and the movie constantly have her weighing her loyalties to House Atreides against her loyalties to the Bene Gesserit. Yes. So, she's her- standing outside the she's standing outside the room, and because because Paul has to have this test mm-hmm. and she can't be there to witness it, but also to uh, guard the room, basically. So if any of the House Atreides guards try to enter the room, she has to kill them. Mm-hmm. And she's also scared for her son at this right. moment and scared for herself. And she conveys those emotions so well in yes. this performance.
2: I was initially, the first time I watched this movie, early on... I don't think this moment specifically, but there's a moment a little bit later where she's wrestling kind of with the same emotions. Yeah. yeah. Um, where it's when she's like walking down the hallway and she's sort of like crying a little bit, but also actively kind of forcing herself to stop crying and to like calm down. Um, and uh, I I liked the the acting that she was doing, but I... I was sort of like, I don't know, like, if Lady Jessica in the book reads as that outwardly emotional to me, right? And then I thought about it a little bit more and also later on in the movie um, gained some appreciation for for this direction, for this performance, where I was like, oh, yeah, because, like, that internal life stuff that you get in the book it's hard to get Mm -hmm. uh, without doing some kind of inner monologue voiceover shit like in David Lynch's Dune, right? So I'm like, okay, they're externalizing this stuff a little bit more than maybe her character would in the book. Like, I don't see Lady Jessica in the book breaking down and crying, you know? But like, she has to do that because it's the most economical way for the movie version to communicate what she's feeling, right? And so on my second and third watch of it, I stopped having that issue with the, with that handling of the performance where I was like, no, yeah, actually this is the correct decision. Yeah. Um, and, and I really like, uh, yeah, what you were just talking about with this scene. Um, she, her kind of doing that same thing where she's calming herself down and simultaneously, like outwardly showing that she's very upset. Um, and that the conflicting kind of emotions of mother and, or the conflicting motivations of being a mother and being a Bene Gesserit are kind of like coming to a head. And then she does the litany against fear. And yeah. It's fucking great. This is another, thing that uh they externalize in this movie yeah that i think is done
0: really well yes in the book paul is reciting this to himself while he's experiencing the pain yeah. of the of the test uh to to calm himself down and um because we can't have him voice in, doing the voiceover right what we do is we have jessica recite that and as Jessica, this is the, I must not fear, Fears, the mind killer, which is the, the famous quote from this book. Yeah. As her, as she recites it and it goes on, she becomes more calm and more brave. And, and we're intercutting that with Paul doing the same thing. Yeah. So it very clearly communicates that Paul is also reciting this in his own head while it's happening. And I just think. I thought, it, I thought this the first time I saw it and I thought it again last night. I think that was a fucking brilliant way yes. to introduce this idea into the film.
2: Agreed. Uh, it, this scene also introduces the, uh, vocal motif that is on the soundtrack for mm-hmm. the first time. Um, this kind of, uh, this f- female vocalist, uh, whose name I unfortunately do not know, um, does a fucking terrific job on this Hans Zimmer soundtrack. Uh, and there's, yeah, kind of like a, of a, a, a um vocal swell uh she's she's kind of uh doing this uh like uh, it's it is reminiscent intentionally of uh like muslim uh religious uh like traditional music um to some extent right like a call to prayer type uh thing Um, but also, you know, it's got some other influences as well. Um, and I just it's it's a really cool uh bit of music and it fucking rocks and this is the first time you hear it in this movie and it's used a couple other times and every single time it's like fucking chills up my spine. That's cool. I was initially
0: not that into it. Oh, interesting. I thought I mean it's it's an interesting melody, it's a it's a commanding performance, Mm. but I thought that my one quibble with the score is that Hans Zimmer leaned into it too much. Oh. And it starts feeling a little bit like the stereotypical Hollywood movie, uh, you know, establishing sh- establishing shot of a Middle Eastern c- country. And we have someone in the background going, ah, yeah. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. Um, but watching it last night, it finally clicked for me that this motif is used at very key points in Paul's character arc.
2: Yes, and I think it's sort of the, it's sort of the audio, uh, yeah, the audio motif of, like, um, his prescience being awakened. Yes, right. His, his future sight, right? Um, so yeah, he passes the, the Gomjabar test. Um, Charlotte Rampling's like, this kid's fucking very intense. <laughs> but I didn't have to stab him with this poison needle. So guess I'll fly back to uh, Bene Gesserit world. His midichlorians are off the charts.
0: <laughs> Not even Yoda has a midichlorian count that high. Pray frank. You know that space magic that you made that I stole for my movies? I turned it into bugs that live in your fucking blood. Go fuck yourself.
2: And instead of the Benny Jessera creating a perfect human to fulfill a prophecy, um, instead it's a bunch of it's the Jedi Council who is uh testing little boy's blood to see if they're the chosen one. So it's totally different. And I gave them a, a laser sword that i can sell the kids to play with and You're... make millions of dollars hey frank i noticed there's a lot of sword fighting in your book but guess what buddy there's no laser swords <laughs> if you were a 10-year-old boy frank which one do you think you'd want to buy more a regular boring metal sword or a fucking laser sword you broke bitch <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're leaving all the Lucas stuff in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> leaving all that in. I cut, it, cut
2: the plot summary out. <laughs> Only do the Lucas.
0: So after the scene, we get a little bit more information about the Benny Jesuit's motives, what they're there for, what they're trying to, uh you know, figure out in retur- in regards to Paul. They're trying to see if he's the Quizatz Hatterack,
2: the Quizatz Hatterack. Yes, um, which is the Ubermensch. It's basically a guy who is. So genetically, uh, fucking uh, superior that he literally can see into the past and future. Um, it's uh Fra- Frank Herbert's f- loves this idea that like because there's no like computers in this world, not only is like all the technology analog, but also humans have essentially had to evolve mentally a lot, mm-hmm. right? So like we got Mentats, which is uh Stephen McKinley Henderson's character Thufir Hawat, um is uh, he's basically like a human computer. Uh, David Desmalchian plays the other one, which we'll get to David Desmalchian. Um, but um, anyway, so there's there's those guys who can like think so fast and accurately that they're basically like human computers. Um, and then there's also uh, people like the Bene Gesserit who like have such strict uh, control, like their, their mind is so powerful that it can control like their anatomy, like they can control their own reproductive systems mm-hmm. and you know alter their voice so that it becomes a mind control uh, mechanism, uh, which is called the voice, right? Um, and so there's all that shit, right? And so basically what the Bene Gesserit are trying to do is like breed uh, someone selectively who is so who has all of these characteristics of like a mentat and also like a has all this bene jesserit uh hoodoo bullshit (laughs) right inherently just genetically in them and then also like train that person to the point where they then um unlock kind of the next level of human like mental evolution which is yeah just being able to look into the future um and the idea is basically like if you're smart enough and have enough data then you can can essentially see the future because you can see every potential possibility, like every potential outcome from any decision that is made. Mm-hmm. Right. And these abilities are starting to awaken in Paul
0: because Jessica has been training him in the Bene Gesserit way. Yes. Against her orders from the Bene Gesserit. Yes.
2: They said, don't do that. It's yeah. not time yet. The yes. quiz ass is a few generations away. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And also, uh, she was instructed to bear only. Uh, bear only daughters right and because she has control of her body and her reproductive
2: organs she chose to have a male uh because she's in love with the duke and she wanted to give him an heir and also kind of because she really wants to be the mom of the quiz that's hatterack is yeah. i think part of the thing here too she's yeah. like i know she's like i know the whole bene jesser plan i know that it's a few generations off but i think i got a quiz hatterack in me. Let, me let me see if i can pop one out
0: and i love <laughs> that the movie explains all of this in less terms than we just used. Yes. Yeah. The Uh, movie really just when, in relation to the quiz as stuff, in relation to uh, the prophecies and the, the legends of uh, the Fremen and the Lisa Al-Gaib. Yes. The movie kind of skips over them. Yeah. And just briefly mentions them and references
1: them. It
2: does what it should do for a visual medium, right? Which is, it shows you a lot more than it tells you. Yeah. Right. You get a lot of the stuff with Paul um, just, through the way that his visions uh um are presented on screen right um and you get a lot of yeah like the fremen prophecy stuff you just get it in the in the way that uh a movie is best equipped to show it to you which is like you know there's shots of like fremen with like prayer books and stuff and there's like uh yeah like crowds of them um like waiting as he passes by and stuff you know um, so you don't need to spend as much time in the dialogue about it because it's like the way that they indicate this stuff visually does a lot of the talking for the movie.
0: Before we get to Arrakis, I, I really just want to focus in on this. It's a very short sequence yeah. that didn't need to go as hard as it did, but it's yeah. leaving Caladan. Yes. And we see this giant like concrete slab of a ship, yes. Rise up from the water, yes. With with water streaming off of it. James Cameron's watching this movie, like, and just jerking off. <laughs> Why didn't I think of this for Avatar? Uh, and Hans Zimmer's going fucking ham. Uh, and Paul is watching the ships leave, and uh, like spending his last few moments on Caladan, And he like grabs a tuft, of, grabs a tuft of grass. Yeah, because he knows this is the last time he's going to see grass for a while. Yes. Uh, and also, you know, puts his hand in the, the oceans of Caladan yep. um, as these giant brutalist nightmare ships start leaving yep. while Hans Zimmer just goes ham.
2: I do think it's funny in, in this sequence as well. We do get a, a brief scene of packing up the house. Yeah. <laughs> we see like all of the the stuff from the atreides castle being like put in like wood uh crates and like you know they're like lined with like cushioning so if like, the the fragile shit doesn't get broken it was just very funny because i was like ah yes the atreides hired movers and <laughs> <laughs> i assume they don't have to hire movers because they the, this society is uh like medieval fifes right so all of these people are just uh you know uh, peasants who are fucking indentured to these rich assholes anyway (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they have to do whatever they're told um but it's oscar isaac telling him and he has kind eyes (laughs) so he's the good one (laughs) um anyway so yeah we show up on arrakis um i love the the first the the scene of them arriving on arrakis this whole sequence is so great because basically like the ships show up the the these brutalist ships that david was describing land uh, on on in the desert right um and uh, the the ship opens and oscar isaac and rebecca ferguson and and uh <laughs> and and their whole crew um come out and uh, there's fucking bagpipes the bagpipes yes are such a good choice and that is not in the book that was just a decision that they made for the movie and i'm like fucking yes house atreides uh uh, fucking instrument is bagpipes which actually also it's is fun because the a lot of what they shot for the caladan scenes was in scotland a lot of the the um locations that they were at for Mm -hmm. caladan was scotland um so it is it ties kind of uh into the whole the Atreides kind of come from Space Scotland, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, yeah, and so the, the bagpipes fucking are going the fuck off here. I love the Atreides armor. Oh, yeah. That Leto's wearing
0: and Gurney Halleck is wearing. Yes, they look like dumb action figures, and I love it.
2: Okay, you say, I'm glad you said that because the podmaster was watching the beginning of this movie with me. She had never seen it before. She's not a big sci-fi person at all. Um, Quite the opposite. And so she didn't finish the movie and doesn't really intend to, which I'm not offended by. Yeah, she told me... It's not for She
0: her. asked me... I, I, I made her ask me what I was reading the other day. Yeah. And I told her I was reading Dune, and she told me to fuck off. It
1: was very <laughs> funny. She, yeah.
2: She's very, she's very anti-Dune. Not, well, just anti-sci-fi in general. It's not her genre. She just... Generally really doesn't enjoy it um which is fine although i do think this is the perfect episode um to introduce one of uh her new on mic names we'll oh, probably God, still mostly right? use the Podmaster, um because it's shorter and easier to say um but i do think high priestess pod <laughs> which is which is another name that we workshop she 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 mandated it yes she mandated high priestess pod as an on mic name um i think high priestess pod the the perfect episode for that to debut is the dune episode because it does sort of sound like uh the bene Gesserit in charge of uh the the bene jesserit podcasting network that sounds like what her official title would be <laughs> she's high priestess pod of the Ben Jesseret. um anyway so uh but while we were watching this uh to go back to the thing about the armor um high priestess pod did say uh about the guys who were in the armor but also had the helmets on she was like they look like bionicles
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> which in order to get the bionicle joke you have to be uh either our age or exactly uh five years older or younger right within that range um but nobody else will have any clue what the fuck that is yep
0: (laughs) well and there's a there's another bit of costuming here that i want to point out because it's very brief and then we'll move on to the ornithopters yes uh fufir hawat um who we haven't really talked about much because he doesn't play a huge role in the movie he doesn't um, but Thufir Hawat is in like a military uniform and a hat. Yes. And he looks like a Nazi.
2: He does. They, a, a lot looks, of the Atreides uniforms have kind of a fascist, uh, uniform kind of right. aesthetic to it. It's a lot more subtle yeah. than I expected.
0: I watched Starship Troopers recently, which yeah. I, I've seen many times and it's very overt in that. Yeah. Um, but this this most recent viewing, I was like, oh, it he kinda looks like an an SA officer. Right. The brown shirts. Right. Um and it's or or even like a a kind of dictator, like a your idea of like a military dictator, how yeah, he would yeah. look. Um and it it's only on this most recent viewing that it kinda clicked for me. Yeah. And it's a really well done, uh, I think subtle bit of a very intentional costuming. Yeah. Uh for the atreides and what house atreides is going to come to represent in the uh the subsequent uh sequels yeah
2: you know um while we're while we're talking about uh Thufir Hawat's costuming um we already said he's not in the movie a ton we might as well just quickly touch on Stephen mckinley henderson uh i think he's great in this movie always great to see him fucking love him uh and yeah just it's a, it's always a delight when he's when he's in something in a little bit
0: yeah, I haven't seen him in a ton of things. Um, I think he does a good job. Yeah. It's just I think it's a matter of uh the character doesn't have a big role to play in this movie. Right. And I think that's true of a lot of the cast. Yeah. This is a two and a half hour movie and it's it's immaculately paced. It yeah. breezes by for me. Yeah. Um But as a result, we don't get a ton of time with this very big cast of great actors yeah. in a lot of in a lot of cases, yeah, we're,
2: we're moving between things really quickly. I do like when he does the little mentat calculations. His eyes kind of roll back into his head. That's yeah. kind of a fun touch. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's really the only reference to him. Yes. being a mentat. Also, it's not in this scene, but I might as well mention it now. I am obsessed with his little paper umbrella in one of the future <laughs> yeah. scenes because he's like still wearing like his like uh his kind of fascist dictator uniform, um, but he's also holding like a delicate, uh, adorable little paper umbrella to protect him from the hot Arakine sun. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's also there's also native Fremen yes. here uh, or n- natives to Arrakis um, that have gathered to see House Atreides arrive. They're shouting "Lisan al Gaib," and this is uh, something that Paul asks Jessica about. And essentially, what's happened is the Bene Gesserit have implanted myths and superstitions throughout the galaxy. Yeah. In uh, in hopes that they can land on a planet and. Immediately have control over that native population because they match the uh, the super the the, the, the prophesized um, messiahs right. of their superstitions, right? And the fremen and the natives to Arrakis have uh, seen that in Paul. They see those
2: signs in Paul, right? Right. So immediately they think that he's he's the one. Yes. Um. And uh, yeah. So then. We're uh oh, uh, then we go to the ornithopter and we fly to uh to Arakin, yeah right the 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 city on arrakis, where they're gonna be living, and this is the thing that I wanted to call out in the sequence visually, I fucking love them flying over the shield wall, which is like this big kind of stone barrier that protects the city from the desert um and then over the city, and it is just like it's it's gorgeous. It's also hideous, which I think is it, yeah, yeah. It, it rocks. It's basically hideous architecture depicted very beautifully, right? Shot very beautifully. Um, but it's like this this kind of horrible, brutalist, uh, like um, collection of uh, you know, rough geometric shapes, um, that are all kind of smashed together as buildings, right? And it's because it's so inhospitable that it's like you don't want any windows really because the sun coming in is awful right so they basically have had to construct like a, a above ground cave is sort of the thing that they have to live in as a city um and i just love the way it looks it looks so rad yeah and it's shot so well um and then coming up to like the palace which is kind of like this big grotesque brutalist pyramid that's looming over all these other littler buildings yeah, that's what i was
0: gonna mention it reminds me of of like a uh an Egyptian, an Egyptian city with a pyramid. Yeah. And uh, to me but in also, the future.
2: Yeah. To me, it also kind of looks like, um, like, like Mayan or Aztec. Right? Yeah. Like, cause it's more like those square pyramids, mm. you know, Um, really cool, uh, really cool visuals. And I, I just love the sequence. And
0: I need to nerd out about the Ornithopters.
2: Yeah. The yep. Ornithopters are one of the coolest
0: science fiction ships I've ever seen uh in in the so in the books they're they're described very briefly it's just like it's basically a ship that can f- sort of flap its wings yeah and uh the movie translates the, that to these ships basically have wings like dragonflies yeah that um they they build up very slowly and then they are moving at uh extremely fast speeds and the, the ship looks like a dragonfly uh the sound design on these things is immaculate yes it Um, rocks and and there's tons of practical ones uh the visual effects for these look fantastic and the thing that i love the most about the ornithopters Mm -hmm. which we see more later in the movie is the instrument panel is all analog dials yes because there's
2: no computers
0: yeah it's all analog dials and instruments and i think it looks so brilliant i lost my mind in the theater the first time i saw this movie yeah at the instrument panel in the ornithopter it absolutely because i'm a fucking
2: dork it absolutely rocks though you're totally right you're completely right um yeah the the ornithopter design is perfect it's it's such a cool interpretation of how they're described in the book uh it's it's an amazing piece of production design so uh anyway so then there's they're settling in the uh palace right we have uh you know like some a scene of uh duke leto uh talking to to gurney halleck um about you know how they're gonna uh handle taking care of arrakis and stuff Mm -hmm. uh this is where josh brolin has a very funny line that is uh literally directly from the book uh which is uh out here you wipe your ass with sand (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um which is very funny that that's a direct frank herbert line um and uh yeah paul's also uh on their way to Arrakis. he's been like learning about like the local stuff so he's getting some knowledge of planet and stuff um the next big thing that happens is probably us going to Giedi prime right yeah we went to Giedi
0: prime a little bit before yeah
2: and uh in the beginning of the movie we were
0: introduced to uh the harkonnens yes baron harkonnen played by stellan skarsgard in a in a fat suit <laughs> in, a, in a great looking fat suit yes um and then uh the beast Raban played by dave Batista yes um and Piter Devries played by david Dalmastian,
2: yes david dasmalchian dasmalchian Des, dasmalchian thank you i think dasmalchian it might be dasmalchian not sure um david dasmalchian or Malkian as the case may be has had a great few years. He that guy keeps popping up and shit. And I know he's, he's been doing shit for a while, Um, uh, but like he was in this, he was in fucking Oppenheimer. He's like been, I feel like I've seen more of him uh, recently than I ever have before. And yeah. every time he shows up, I'm like, yes, there is my fucking guy. <laughs> People loved him in the
0: uh, James Gunn suicide squad movie. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I haven't seen a ton of stuff with him uh in, in like a main role yeah but love seeing him in a supporting role
2: yeah and uh i love him as pitter Devries because the in the in the book and also very much in the movie even though you get less of him his vibe is very much like this is like a, a creepy sick little weirdo right uh but also he's like constantly afraid for his life <laughs> right so he's like he he's not quite like a sniveling little shit creature like i like to see in movies a lot of the time but he's like he's sort of the upper crust version of that (laughs) you know um and uh yeah i just i i love him in this movie yeah um i love his kind of like shifty little eyes being like okay so this is what we're doing huh okay (laughs) (laughs) i love uh, dave batista yeah dave batista
0: is the best wrestler turned actor oh yeah
2: oh yeah by far this is our first batista movie that we're yeah covering. yeah he's great not um, enough of him in this i agree um, he's gonna be a bigger part of part two i'm sure yeah
0: and his, his character isn't uh, a main part of the books either you know, yeah he's not a not a huge character in the books he's kind of barely in the books
2: yeah i would say he's maybe in this in this movie just part one more than that character is in the books yeah
0: Um but I love his performance in this, and I love the way he characterizes uh Raban, who who is he is he Raban is like the uh Baron's the Baron's nephew. Mm -hmm. And then his other nephew is Fade Rautha, who is going to be in the second one. Yeah. But uh Raban is the the big, hulking, um, brutal, violent idiot uh, nephew. Older (laughs) idiot nephew. And I love the way that Batista portrays him in this because he is very childlike yes. and mercurial. Yeah, that's. And then has these giant emotional outbursts. Yeah,
2: that's the, that was the thing for me that I latched onto as well, where I was like, oh, he's playing this because this guy's kind of like a, a, an enormous violent uh idiot right he's sort of yeah playing him like a child um which I uh really enjoyed I really enjoyed and even the emotional outbursts feel like kind of like a like childlike yeah right like a temper tantrum right yeah. um yeah I, I love it excited to see more of this performance in the next installment and uh Stellan Skarsgård is awesome yeah as he as he generally is it's very funny because he's simultaneously and part of it is like the prosthetics that they have on mm. him um, but part of it is just you know Stellan Skarsgård acting, right? He sort of disappears into this performance a little bit, and then every once in a while he'll say something, and I'll be like, "That was so Stellan Skarsgård." <laughs> like it's it's very interesting how he's simultaneously very recognizable in this, and also at the same time you're like, "But he he like is his mannerisms and his look." is so different from how you're used to seeing him. It's, it's a very interesting performance for him. Yeah. um, And I really like it. Yeah. The character in the books is
0: uh, a very problematic character by a modern, by modern uh, standards in a lot of ways, because he's described he's, he's evil because he's really fat. Yeah. And he's also, uh he's also a child predator yes. in the books, which yes. this movie wisely uh, does not make reference to. Yes.
2: In the books, it is, he is explicitly a pedophile. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Um, but he has this uh, these this technology called suspensors that allow him to sort of float because he is so fat. Um, And I love the way the movie. Portrays that where it's like this piece of machinery that is like fused onto his back. Yeah. And uh, he kind of uses it as an intimidation thing. It kind of glows and rumbles at points. It's great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's something really fun about a flying fat guy.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> this Gaty Prime scene
2: specifically also introduces us to the spider. <laughs> Which, okay. Okay. We can't spend the rest of this episode talking about the spider. Yeah. But it's, this is fucking wild. <laughs>
0: It's so. Not, so you've read one one Dune book. Yes. I've read six Dune books. Yeah. I don't know what
2: this fucking thing is. It's not from the books. It's it's a it's De, Denis Villeneuve and and company invented this for the movie. And you know what? Great fucking edition. It's so cool. <laughs> I, ten out of ten. No notes uh, on this edition that that was not part of the book because this thing it's got human hands. It's got thumbs. Right. And yeah, it looks like a big old, it looks like if you, if you fused a human being, if, if, as if we are in David Cronenberg's The Fly, (laughs) or the 1950s Fly that that's based on. If a person got into one of those pods, and then a spider was in the other pod, and then they came out and put on a gimp suit. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was exactly going to (laughs) say.
0: I was like, if he doesn't bring up gimp suit, I'm going to say gimp suit. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's, it's fucking crazy
0: it also understands humans yes <laughs> it understands human speech there's a point where uh, uh uh either either uh piter or uh the baron say um oh it's it's our, it, our, it, it, it can't
2: understand us yes it's Piter because i love the the david desmalchian delivery our pet can't understand yeah. our language your, <laughs> your language yeah your and right. then the reverend mother
0: says get out in the voice and then it <laughs> and off. she goes it understands yeah. uh there's theories that this is uh supposed to be dr yue's wife yes who has been taken hostage yeah she's been taken hostage by the harkonnens and tortured this will come into play later yeah uh but she's not a character that's uh very prominent in the books yes so people are are theorizing that that
2: is what the spider is supposed to be yeah they turned her into a gim spider yeah i think that theory is lame and dumb, and I think just let the spider be the spider. You just want it to be a GIMP spider. Yes, okay. yes, that's my feelings on that. Do you like? Do you like that theory? I.
0: It's okay I, if you I, do. I respect. <laughs> I respect that. Uh, I respect that. Um, uh, that point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't necessarily buy I buy into the uh, the theory super heavily, just because I don't know the details enough. Um,
2: yeah. I'm hoping we get more GIMP spider in the second one. <laughs> I would love more GIMP spider. Yeah uh this is just what the ancestors of the the human centipede doctor have been doing twenty thousand years in the future <laughs> we've moved on from human centipedes to human gimp spider um anyway so uh yeah in this scene basically what's happening is like the Rev- reverend mother played by uh charlotte rampling and then uh uh Peter de and uh and baron Harkonnen um are all sort of talking about this plot that they're all in on right um so here is where we as the viewer uh get confirmation that the emperor uh is working with the harkonnens and the whole thing of the atreides taking over uh, arrakis um is a setup that's coordinated by the harkonnens and the emperor together to essentially make duke leto uh fail um and eventually uh you know lead to his demise um so they're kind of plotting together to get rid of duke leto and it's because duke leto is like too powerful too popular the emperor feels threatened and he wants this guy gone but it would be too it would be too um uh it, it would be a problem if he like waged war on him directly right because then some of the other uh Uh, They call them the great houses, but it's basically the other kingdoms, right, that are under the empire. Um, Some of them would take issue with that if the emperor just fucking waged war on this guy directly. So he's got to, like, do it in a sneaky way is the whole thing.
0: And the Bene Gesserit want the Baron to leave Jessica and Paul alive because they have plans for them. Right. Um I love the, uh, the, like the cone of silence. Yes. That yes. they use. Yes. Which, which is something
2: from the books. Yes. They call it the cone of silence in the book and it's not described what a cone of silence is yeah. or how it works. So this was totally like up to, uh to the, the creators of the film to determine how they wanted to interpret that. And the way they do it is the best possible option because uh the reverend mother says activate silence. And then just this fucking like spotlight, cone-shaped spotlight um pops up just around the area where they're all sitting and everything outside of it is muffled and then when you go inside you can hear perfectly clearly and i'm like that is and it looks like an actual cone Yeah. <laughs> and it fucking rules it's so good it yeah. rocks so hard <laughs> i love it
0: um i also love at the end of the scene after the after the reverend mother leaves um you know uh, the baron is like is talking with piter about um you know i said i won't harm them i won't said i won't harm the boy and the mother and i will not but arrakis is arrakis and the desert takes the week and then his suspensors start activating and he uh, ru- he floats into the air yes with this super long uh like uh cloak yeah that descends all the way to the ground specifically for situations in which he needs to <laughs> uh fly up in his suspensors to be intimidated yes and he delivers <laughs> my desert my rock is my dune there is it's a- so cool and it's like they they add a they add a, a voice effect yes um and i don't know if it's if it's like a piece of technology that he has or something it sounds awesome
2: though. yes i uh i agree a uh, great moment fucking rocks also um with the harkonnen voice modulation he's uh, uh Stellan skarsgård isn't the only one who has it some of the harkonnens have sort of like orc voices yeah <laughs> and also the sardaukar as well yeah um and it's it's such an interesting thing in this movie to to kind of take that almost like fantasy angle right because there's nothing in universe that is explained as to why some of these people just sound like monsters in this movie. But I think it totally works. Like, it's like, I, I as a viewer never was like questioning it. I was like, okay, that's just what those guys sound like. Yeah. And it does make them effectively like more intimidating and shit. So I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, it
0: absolutely <laughs> does. We'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to the, uh, this, the first scene where we see the Sardaukar. Cause yeah. we're going to, that's a great scene. as Yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. A, a short scene that happens here is, uh, Duncan Idaho comes back yeah. with Stilgar who is the leader of the Fremen. Uh Stilgar meets Duke Leto and Leto wants to form an alliance with them. Uh there's a, a great scene where Stilgar spits yeah. as a sign of respect because water is a pres- precious commodity on Arrakis, so anything that expends moisture is seen as um either, you know, it, it's a very it's a very precious and meaningful act right. to do that. Yeah. Um and he spits on a table and everyone freaks out. Right. And then there's a very funny moment where, uh, uh, Jason Moa is like, thank you still gar for the gift of your body's moisture. And he spits. And then Duke Leto
1: spits. Yeah.
2: It's also funny when Duke Leto spits. Cause Oscar Isaac kind of like hawks up like a little bit of a loogie yeah. to spit. He's like, <laughs> 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 which I, I like. Um, um, but
0: the main thing that happens in this next scene is the spice harvester scene.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah yeah, um we'll we'll go back to Stillguard later because i do want to talk about javier bardem but let's put a pin in that and yeah we'll talk spice harvester yes so they're basically going gonna go out to check on the spice operation now that uh duke leto is in charge of it um the person uh who's going to be their their tour guide um is dr liette Kynes. uh which in the book Dr. Leah Kinds is uh, a a male character, right? Um and in the movie they've they've gender swapped Leah Kinds. Um so this is uh, a a woman. Um a decision that a lot of fucking dumbass nerds on the internet had a problem with. Uh, a decision which I think totally works. Yeah. Um I do think the what they do with Leah Kinds in this movie does fundamentally change the role that that character has in the story and i think it's as good as the version in the book because basically in the book at least this was my interpretation i don't want to spend too much time on Leah Kynes, um but um basically in the book my interpretation is like this is a uh like a he's essentially a, a white guy a white colonizer right who um, decides that he relates more to the native culture than he does to the culture that he's from, right? And attempts to integrate himself as effectively as possible, right? And ultimately, his sort of arc and his eventual demise in the book, to me, represents that it's like you thought that because you immersed yourself into this culture... You weren't an outsider in this place, but his kind of ultimate fate to me in the book is like, but you still actually are. You still sort of don't belong here, right? And he has a conversation with the ghost of his father. I'm not going to get all in the weeds about it, but he's basically rejecting that idea outwardly. But then to me, the way that his fate is sealed kind of is like, yeah, but like you you fell in love with the desert, but you're not of the desert, Mm -hmm. you know? I sort of think that the way this movie handles Leah Kynes is kind of the opposite, right? where they they keep her um origin um a little bit more vague, right? And it's like maybe she truly is Fremen, right? Um, and it, it her eventual her eventual demise in the way it's different from how he dies in the book, right? to me kind of reads the opposite way where it's like, oh no, she is more Fremen than she is outsider. Right. Um, and yeah, I just thought, I thought it was an interesting thing that they did. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Cause I, uh, my memory of kinds in the book is pretty, uh, pretty sparse.
0: Yeah. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. I think Sharon Duncan Brewster, who yes. plays the character in this movie is, does a great job with the role.
2: She's so
0: fantastic. Yes. in this movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, we get the scene where they're fitted with still suits, uh, which is a suit that allows you to recycle your body's moisture while you're out in the deep desert. Yeah. Uh, it does not mention that you can poop and pee in it. Yes. The movie does not mention that you can poop and pee in a still suit. Yes. And I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to just take to need a task with that. I wanted a balise. <laughs> we don't get a balise, and I want to know that we're pooping
2: and peeing in these still suits. <laughs> and that the water that you are drinking from your still suit still suit is recycled water from yes, your your sweat and tears and saliva, but also your pee pee and your poo-poo. <laughs> I wanna
0: I wanna still suit that uh
2: recycles my pee-pee and poo-poo into beer <laughs> i want a beer still suit. a beer still soup. <laughs> and there's like pods where you like insert fucking yeast and malt and hops yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh but we have to talk about the spice harvester scene yeah 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 So yeah, they go, they go fly in the ornithopter to a spice harvesting operation. And we see this big ass vehicle, the spice harvester Mm -hmm. uh, out in the desert and they're, you know, mining spice from the sand. Uh, And uh, 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 Leah Kynes is explaining worm sign, which is basically this indication on the surface, these dust clouds that let you know that a sandworm is coming, right? And uh, Leto spots some worm sign. He's like, like that over there? And she's like, yeah, good eyes. And so then they call it the spice harvester, and they're like, "Yo, there's a worm coming!" And the spice spice harvester is like, "Who the fuck is this?" <laughs> Which I love. And uh, you know, what I wanted to see on that spice spice harvester. What?
0: It's me, David Lynch.
2: <laughs> yes, because he drives the he drives the harvester in in his version. <laughs> it'd be so fun it'd be so funny if he had had a voice cameo as the spice harvester driver in this yeah if oscar isaac had been like worm spot worm sign spotted you know fucking however many meters away from your location and he'd been like hello hello (laughs) this is
0: david lynch who is this who is this
2: (laughs) this is duke leto Traides.
0: who Sorry, (laughs) this is Gordon Cole with the Federal
2: Bureau of Investigation. (laughs) I took a a job on this spice harvester because federal employment isn't paying what it used to. My my wages haven't been keeping up with inflation, so I had to get a side hustle as the driver of this spice harvester. (laughs) <laughs> I was able to transport myself twenty thousand years in the future by going to the Black Lodge. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs>
1: it's not David Lynch on the Spice no.
2: Um. Unfortunately. So. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Oscar Isaac is basically like, wow, they seem really chill, right? And they're like, yeah, they're gonna harvest spice till the last minute, right?
0: Yeah. Basically, what happens is the sandworms are attracted to the the sound the sounds and the vibrations of spice harvesting and what happens is they have this um this ship called the carryall that attaches itself to the spice harvester and carries the spice har- harvester back to Arakeen. yeah um and they harvest spice up until the last minute to get as much spice as possible
2: yeah i love the fucking uh design of the carryall um cuz like the the top of it has these huge there's like four huge balloons on top um and it's so it's like a it's sort of like a hot air balloon, right? Or like a zeppelin or whatever, right? Where it's got um yeah, these like four big inflatable things, right? And then it's got the little arms that it like shoots out to grab onto the the yeah. spice harvester. It's just the design is really rad.
0: I love the the design of the harvesters too. Yeah. The harvesters are somewhere between like the Jawa sand crawler from Star Wars and the launch vehicle of the space shuttle (laughs) yeah uh and it's awesome yeah they're huge they have these giant treads they there's like there's plumes of smoke and dust that uh billow out the back of this thing yeah Uh, i think it looks great the the visual effects are amazing in this movie
2: hey hey denis i i just saw I just saw your your dune part one there man and i gotta be honest with you i'm noticing some similarities between that spice harvester and a a certain jawa sand crawler and and also uh you you know what buddy i i noticed that you gave the ornithopters four wings that are sort of in an x formation you might even call them x-shaped wings Denis. Well, you might want to you might want to watch your fucking back man or i'm going to have lawyers on your ass before you fucking know it <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't have a lucas check that one you got it you nailed all of them you hit all the points i wanted to hit um this carry all shows up and uh, one of the arms uh, fails so they're not going to be able to carry the the spice heart the spice harvester out yes
2: um great st- urgency in this scene great tension yes the score is doing a lot of work to escalate it Uh, Uh, leto's
0: immediately immediately like uh okay forget about the spice we're gonna go in we're gonna save uh, as many people as possible i i want to talk about my experience watching this movie for the first time because this is about an hour into the movie yeah um i was watching the movie and it was just kind of like passing through me not that i wasn't engaged but i wasn't really able to comprehend what I was seeing, it was just, movie is happening, and I'm, 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 I'm sitting in a theater watching Dune for the first time. Mm. There's a moment where Duke Leto decides to go after the Spice Harvester, and the wings of the Ornithopter fold back to give him a chance to build up some speed. Yeah, He goes into a dive, and then the wings redeploy yeah. at the bottom of the dive. And this, the the Ornithopters go after the Spice Harvester. Yeah. That was the moment where I was fully locked into the
2: movie. Yeah. It kicks so much ass.
0: It it, it happened last night, too. It happens every time. This is also a really memorable scene in the book. Even the yeah. first time when I read it. Yeah. Uh, this is an, an, a great scene from the book. Um I think this is where the book really, really hooked me for yeah. sure,
2: where I was like, oh, fuck, I love this. <laughs> and and I'm
0: happy to say that they uh, they knocked this scene out of the park.
2: They, it literally captures everything that is so great about this scene in the book perfectly, um, in my opinion. Um. Yeah. So they take the ornithopters down. They land. Basically, the plan is we're gonna get all the, the the human beings off the spice harvester. Um. So that when this worm comes and gobbles it up, uh, we'll have at least saved all the human life, even though all the spice will be, you know, fucking lost. Yeah. Um. So they're they're telling yelling at the guys, telling them to load up on the ornithopters. Uh. Paul gets off to like help direct them to the right ones, and uh, he breathes in some spice for the first time. Right. He he gets uh you know the, the sand is being kicked up and this is like a spice rich field that they've been mining so he just gets a fucking base full of this shit and uh he starts tripping balls yeah. <laughs> and see in the future yeah
0: this is his spice awakening yes um and while the the worm is coming which by the way the worms in this movie yeah are so well depicted yeah as you just see mountains of sand moving and uh plumes of dust and sand explode every, and the rumble the sound design's magnificent
1: yeah
2: uh you really get the majesty of these things yeah where they feel because the fremen worship them as gods mm-hmm. they feel godlike mm-hmm. you know it feels like this is something not only is this a giant creature but also there is something yeah that there is there's sort of a um a, a reverence to how they're like a, a a reverence and a majesty to how they're depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like you get why the Fremen think that they're God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it rocks. Yeah. Um, so, uh, they notice that Paul hasn't come back to the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he's kind of like over by the spice harvester, um, tripping, tripping out and seeing the future. Right. Um, so then, uh, Gurney Halleck comes to get him. I do like the little detail here where earlier, uh, Gurney Halleck comes up behind, uh, Paul before the training sequence and, uh, and Gurney Halleck's like, oh, you know, you shouldn't have your back to the door. And he's like, well, I recognize your footsteps. Um, and Gurney Halleck gives him shit for it. And then in this scene uh gurney's coming up behind him as he's like in his spice trance and he just kind of goes i recognize your footsteps old man um because he knows it's gurney coming up behind him before he even sees him and it's just it's just a cool little callback.
0: yeah Yeah. and then as gurney and paul are running back to the ornithopters the worm gets very close yeah and they trip and fall in the sand and the sand starts like pooling up around them and displacing and becoming almost liquid which is a real real thing that can happen yep uh And and it looks fantastic
2: it looks so cool there's a lot of photography in this movie of just sand moving yeah and it always looks fucking gorgeous it's beautiful yeah um so the the worms come in they're kind of sinking into the sand uh they end up getting to the ornithopter and like are saved at the last minute basically they jump on the ramp and and fly away just as the worm is, um, surfacing to gobble up the, the sand, uh, I almost said sand crawler. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to get sued by you. You say Lee. sand crawler, you're going <laughs> to owe me, owe me $10,000,
0: you
2: motherfucker. But yeah, it, it, uh, emerges to eat the spice harvester and it, it looks fucking incredible. This, this like nest of teeth. Yeah. Opens up, uh,
0: from, from, from the ground. Yeah. And- it swallows this, this spice harvester um, in the foreground. We see Gurney and Paul hanging off the end of the ornithopter as it's happening. Um, it's probably the
2: best scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely up there at least. And
0: uh, it's, it's, it's fucking fantastic.
2: Yes. And as much as I love this and think it's a perfect scene, also that sandworm mouth emerging out of the desert does kind of look like a giant butthole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um that's not a negative that's not a critique i think uh it's it's the most majestic amazing giant butthole i've ever seen put to screen but it it kind of looks like a giant butthole <laughs> <laughs> um but a giant butthole that i would not want to be swallowed up by <laughs> uh as as opposed to a giant butthole that i would want to be swallowed up by uh not sure what i meant by that yeah <laughs>
0: Uh, there's a, a brief vision here that Paul has. Uh, he explains his, his vision to that he had while out there in the sand to Jessica. Yeah. Where he uh, en- envisions meeting the girl on Arrakis um, and she stabs him. Mm-hmm. So he, he, the knife, the Chris knife, which is a, a sacred knife to the Fremen people. Yeah. It's, it's made um, out of a worm tooth. Made out of a worm tooth, the tooth of Shai um, the Christ knife becomes a, a recurring image in his visions, yeah, and uh he also knows that Jessica is pregnant. Yes, and Jessica has not told anyone. um but then we go to Seleucia Secundus, yeah, which is the uh the imperial uh, the, the imperial planet, yes, in the galaxy um and we meet the sardacar yes so the Sardaukar are the emperor's soldiers yes and we're introduced
2: to this scene by a dude on a on a on a podium throat singing yes he is like it, he it's like a guy is at the top of an air traffic control tower but there's no like enclosure on the top of the tower he's just kind of standing up there but it is kind of like yeah this big tower yeah and he's doing he's doing throat singing and doing some shit with his hands it it, it is it is simultaneously uh like it's not confusing but it is contextless right where you're just like it's just kind of up to my imagination what the fuck this
1: guy's yeah. deal is like what what this is all this about. movie's
0: really good about uh treating the weirder elements of this universe as normal and right. also just throwing you into them
2: and being like with Fuck it. you! <laughs> like, now. Either yeah. you're on board or you're not. The other thing that I love in this scene that is weird and never explained, uh but also doesn't need to be explained because it fucking just rocks as a visual is there's all of these people. Uh, So there's the the Sardaukar, uh, there's some kind of ceremony. I think it might be a graduation ceremony for the Sardaukar. (laughs) Where it's like, you're officially Sardaukar now, right? Yeah, they're like marking their
0: foreheads with blood.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So it's Sardaukar commencement. Yeah. Um, But uh, the the blood that they're marking their foreheads with, there's all of these people who are kind of like, there's like kind of this slope uh, of like stone and they're chained upside down. Like on this slope, and their blood is just trickling into they they've been like cut or something, um, and their blood is just trickling into like a gutter that they're filling these bowls from to like mark these dudes' heads. It's such a rad visual. Yeah, it's so fucking metal. It
0: goes so hard, and it's raining, so the water's mixing in with the blood. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty rad, and I I think this movie may have been R at one point. Yeah, because these guys have like uh, underwear on yeah. have these guys that are upside down. And, uh, I, I feel like that may have been painted on in post. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah, like yeah. we may have had some naked, naked dudes in this movie. Otherwise.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right about that. I also sort of think that, uh, cause we've seen some of the trailers stuff, uh, in some of the trailer stuff for Dune part two, that the fade Routh uh, scene where he's introduced and he's doing his fight is in black and white. I'm wondering if that is similarly like, one of the reasons in addition to it's aesthetically cool that that scenes in black and white is maybe because there's going to be some blood in that scene, some, some gore in that scene that would pop that up to an R yeah. if, if it wasn't in black and white, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, in the, the shield effects that when
0: the people have their shields on and, um, something penetrates the shield, it shifts from blue to red. Yeah. And that's kind of like a replacement for blood. Yeah. 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 Uh, and there's a really great replacement for blood in the scene where, kinds dies that we'll talk about too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, this guy, this guy's fucking going ham, uh, throat singing.
2: Yeah. And then up. Uh, he's piter, doing his freestyle.
0: <laughs> piter is there to talk to the leader of the Sardacar.
2: And and David Dasmalchian uh playing playing Pitter in this scene is hilarious because he's so out of his element yeah. with the Sardaukar. Like this guy is like towering over him and he's like, What do you want with the fucking Sardacar? But he's like speaking Sardaukar, which is a very scary-sounding language. And Peter's like, well, it, it, three battalions as agreed. Right. He's just kinda like, Please don't hurt me, you fucking giant monster of a man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, this is this is another uh place where Denis decides to just make the bad guys sound like monsters. Yes. And the uh there's kind of some like weird there's a disconnect between the voice and uh the guy's mouth movements. Yeah. Like it's 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 dubbed and then there's some sort of vocal effect put on it, but it's not a very good it's not done very well and i kind of like it yeah it kind of makes him a little bit more mysterious right, and intimidating like, and also the deal he's, with a, this he's guy.
2: a he's a guy with a face he's got a great oh, yeah. face oh yeah um he's he's uh just very imposing and strange to look at um but yeah, so they they basically uh d- chat through their little business deal here where uh, uh David Dasmalchian's like, "Yeah, you give us the three battalions or whatever." And uh and the Sardaukar guy is basically like, "Yeah, we'll get the job done. Uh any anybody who goes up against the Sartakar fucking dies." Yeah. <laughs> so, you got nothing to worry about. Um and so, uh brief scene on Seleucus Secundus, but we had to spend some time on it because it's uh, one of the most rad visuals in this entire movie. <laughs> There's a brief scene between Jessica and Duke Leto.
0: Uh, it's one of the few scenes that they have together where before the scene, like like you mentioned earlier, Rebecca Ferguson is crying and trying to hold in a lot of emotions and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, she goes to talk to Leto about Paul. And um, Leto's very concerned about her... Motives And whether she's uh, she's going to be loyal to House Atreides or she's loyal to the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Um, and a, a great great little scene between the two of them. We haven't talked about Os- Oscar Isaac a ton. Oscar
2: Isaac's great. Yeah, as he generally is. I, I He's one of my faves. Yeah. I love Oscar Isaac uh, a lot. And I think he's perfect gassing for this role. Yeah,
0: perfect fit for the role. Yeah. Um, and this also gets around something that happens in the books where in the book we know the plans... To uh, we know the the plan and the conspiracy to dismantle House Atreides from the first chapter where it's introduced we know about it for a very long time right we know how it's going to happen we know who's going to betray them how that element of the book is able to generate conflict and, and intrigue out of the reader is House Atreides is also trying to figure out who's betraying them and there's a lot of mistrust between members of House Atreides, both the the family members and their their court, I guess. Um so they're trying to figure out who it is, but we know the whole time. And that creates some tension and creates some intrigue. Yeah. And I think this scene does a really good job of just condensing it really quickly where it's like we we get the sense that there's some tension in House Atreides going on over the future, over Paul, over what's going to happen. Um, but we're not dwelling on it too much. So that way we can uh surprise the audience a little bit more with the fall of House Atreides, which is coming up in this next moment.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, And so speaking of that next moment, uh, everybody goes to bed. There's a a sweet little moment with uh with oscar isaac and rebecca ferguson where um he's like uh kind of falling asleep in her lap it's very very sweet and endearing um and uh you know uh, timothy is is snoozing away Mm -hmm. and uh somebody is up to no good in the palace at night um and so uh leto gets woken up um by there's like some light flashing on his wall and he looks out the window and sees that it's a light like across the city that's like blinking like morse code right and immediately he's like uh oh this is someone is doing a secret code and i'm in danger and my family's in danger right so he immediately like leaves the room and starts like looking around um he finds uh we didn't talk about her earlier scene but there's a character called shutout mapes um who is a uh, a fremen who works in the atreides household right Mm -hmm. Uh, she's like one of their servants that they get when they move to arrakis um and she uh has like a moment with lady jessica earlier but because we don't want this episode to be four hours long we're not going to talk over the entire thing um he finds her dead right um and so he now for sure knows something's up Mm -hmm. um and uh right as he is going to spring into action he gets shot with a fucking poison dart (laughs) and yeah. gets paralyzed A poison
0: dart that is able to penetrate his shield yes because uh, it passing goes slowly yes
2: because it goes slow once it hits the shield which i like i like that shot of it like slowly going into him yeah um, and it's
0: revealed that uh, dr yue yeah has betrayed them yes uh, because the harconans have his wife and she might be a gimp spider i don't know <laughs> yeah uh, but he cut a deal with the baron that if he delivers duke leto to the baron then he will free his wife Mm -hmm. there's a moment that happens later in this sequence where uh ua installs a poison false tooth yes in duke leto's mouth remember the tooth remember the tooth (laughs) uh because uh ua's hope is that leto's going to get close enough to the baron that he can crush the tooth and breathe out the poison and kill the baron in the room yes that that's his plan to get back at the baron um, but the rest of the fall of House Atreides happens in yeah. the meantime, and this is uh, an amazing sequence yep. as uh, the, uh, the the Atreides soldiers wake up, they run out to the airfield, and they see these Harkonnen ships descending uh, through the atmosphere. And they land on the airfield and Gurney Halleck's out there with them. He kills a couple of guys. The and fucking sh- bagpipes kick back yeah, in. he shouts with me and they all start charging and the bagpipes come back. Yeah. Uh, amazing stuff. We haven't talked about the score. Yeah. Should we talk about the score now? Sure, yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer crushes it. Yeah, it's, know, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing shit. Yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer, uh, I think he, you know, has his, uh, he rests on his laurels in some scores. Yeah. He... Um, it does what people expect him to? I think he's rightly criticized for it in many
2: cases. I think he put his whole pussy into the Dune score. I completely agree. I think that this is a like a an S tier Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> um, yeah, he really it's a it's a, it's colossal and epic and all the things that you need it to be for this movie. Um, the, the influences from uh, Middle Eastern music when mm-hmm. they come through are, are very uh, cool and uh, you know, fit the the tone and the aesthetic of the thing. And also like some of the more orchestral stuff, some of the like big droning uh, stuff that he does as well. Like all that shit's great. Uh, yeah. It's, it's fucking rad.
0: It really puts the opera in space opera for this movie. <laughs> I think it, it does. It, it sells the, high drama and emotions yeah. of its, of its most powerful yeah. sequences. Yeah.
2: Like the scale of this thing yeah. reflected big time in the music. Absolutely. Um, it, it fucking rocks. Um, and what also fucking rocks is, uh, all of the uh, fucking special effects in this fall of house atreides sequence there's like the harkonnen bombs which they're dropping onto like the atreides ships and they like hit the the shields of the ships and then slowly move through the shield so like the shield turns red and then the bomb goes through the shield and hits the the thing and it explodes and they they explode kind of within the shield yeah and then and and then then it like breaks and
0: then it it their the explosion spreads
2: out yeah um, House of Traides has like some missile turrets that they start shooting back with. Yeah, I love the turrets. Yeah, the turrets are great. There's a really, really cool, it's later in the sequence, but there's a really, really cool visual of one of the Harkonnen ships um, is kind of hovering above uh, the battlefield and it shoots out like 600 missiles at once. Like it's just like shoots out like a huge barrage of missiles. Um, and the the entire ground below like cause they're just bombing the city. Like the whole city just starts burning. Um, it's fucking rad.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. That yeah. shot in particular is gorgeous. Yeah.
2: We also speaking of gorgeous shots here, we also get one of my favorite shots of the movie, which is uh there were some some date palm trees that were introduced in a previous scene. Um, these are like sacred palm trees uh that um grow outside of the palace right um and it's like hard to keep them alive they make a whole big deal about this um during the harkonnen invasion the palm trees get lit on fire Mm -hmm. um and one of my favorite shots of the movie is kind of there's like an overhead aerial shot of a bunch of people like fighting um in the background and closer to the foreground of the shot you just see the tops of these uh palm trees ablaze and and it rocks
0: and uh dave bautista is there uh, like executing prisoners yeah he's like cutting Uh, dudes heads off and uh i think this is another one of those things that Maybe this movie was R at one point because it gets kind of blurry when he starts the 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 focus on the image. Yeah, uh, blurs a little bit when he starts cutting dudes heads off uh, in the sh- in the, as these palm trees are just casting a glow uh, around the around the area. Yeah, um, we get Real a, a really really dope sequence of Jason Momoa fighting dudes in the palace. Yep. Um, there's there's a really kick-ass moment where someone shoots, I think someone shoots another dart at him, and as it passes through his shield really slowly, he like deflects it with his sword. Yeah. It's kick-ass.
2: It fucking rocks. Um the fight choreo here is also the choreo in this movie is not super showy. It's not super flashy. Yeah. It's like really fast and efficient and reads very realistically as um as combat, right? It doesn't look like movie combat. It kind of looks like more like how real (laughs) real martial arts sometimes look um and i think it's very effective and very cool uh i i so all the fighting here looks pretty pretty rad as well
0: yeah there's a there's a, a big fight on the staircase of the palace where the harkonnens uh march uh, march towards a, a battalion of Atreides soldiers. And then the Sardaukar deploy behind the Atreides soldiers. They just sort of like drift down from their ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, important, an important detail from the books that this movie ignores is that in the book, the Harkonnens and the Sardaukar are all dressed as Harkonnens. Right, because... To, to, yeah. to, to hide the fact that the Emperor's involved. Right. Uh, they don't do that in the movie.
2: Yes. I think... And in the in the movie, I think they sort of intend for because they'll probably play with this in dune part two so it'll be interesting to see what they do whether people like know that the emperor is involved or not but like if the emperor is not involved i kind of think the rationale on the movie side is basically like well everybody who saw one of those guys is either dead or presumed dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) right um so it's basically like yeah we didn't have them dress as harkonnens because nobody survived is sort of maybe the idea but we'll see okay yeah um anyway so uh as this huge sequence is happening um paul and jessica get captured by some harkonnens and they get taken on an ornithopter like they they're on a on a ship um being flown out into the desert mm-hmm. right um because the plan with them is basically like well we made a promise to the bene jesserit not to kill them, so let's just dump them in the desert and let the desert kill him for us yeah um and uh as this is happening uh oh also duncan idaho eventually gets in an ornithopter and flies away as well yeah there's um, a there's
0: a scene where like uh there's a there's a laser yeah. beam that's uh sort of tracking his ornithopter and it destroys this building around him as he's trying to escape and he's flying through the wreckage of the city yeah it's us kick ass
2: yeah so, yeah some fun spaceship action um but yeah so uh paul and jessica on this ship with these harkonnens are um, trying to figure out how they're going to get out of it Uh, they've put, uh, you know, a gag over Jessica's mouth. So she can't use the voice on them. Um, we, this is maybe a good scene for us to briefly talk about how the voice is handled in this movie. Yeah. Um, because this is the first, it's been used in the movie already, but this is kind of the first scene that focuses very heavily on usage of the voice. Uh, how do you feel about how it's done in the movie? Hey, Frank Herbert, (laughs) you know, that, that voice
0: you had, (laughs) I'm going to, what, what if the Jedi's use that? Huh? What if, what if the what if I had Alec Guinness use that in my my Star Wars movie, uh, but, and he, he uses it to, to trick some stormtroopers, huh? And we'll call it a Jedi
2: mind trick. It's different because he waves his hand. See, yeah. So because he's doing he's doing the little hand wave. Guess what? You you don't have a leg to stand on. <laughs>
0: and uh, it, it uh it only works on the weak minded. And um also floating uh g- dragons that are jewish stereotypes and giant giant slug monsters that run criminal empires uh it's immune you know they're immune to it as well so it's totally different frank spe- try try to sue me you little bitch just spe- try spe- i'll fucking bury you in the sand i'll bury you on arrakis you little punk
2: speaking of big fat crime lords who uh mind tricks don't work on uh Hey, uh, I I got your cease and desist for my Jabba the Hut character because he bears a, a striking resemblance to Baron Harkonnen. But this guy's a Hut. He's an alien. So uh, even though he's big and fat, and he has to float around in order to move, and he has a stranglehold on a desert planet because he made so much money smuggling something that is uh totally coincidentally called spice. Uh, it's totally different because he's a big green alien. Honestly, Frank, I've never even heard of this Baron Harkonnen guy. Jabba the Hutt is a George Lucas original, now buddy. Sh- now shut the fuck up and watch, watch this CGI
0: nightclub song that I'm going to add back into Return of the Jedi. Because I'm George Lucas, motherfucker.
2: Sure, Jabba the Hutt is a sex pervert and Baron Harkonnen is also a sex pervert, but we both know that's just how big fat guys are, Frank. <laughs> it's it's just parallel thinking, man. <laughs> I like I like that George Lucas is now gaslighting Frank Herbert. <laughs> Uh anyway, we were talking about the voice. Yeah. Yes. Um I, how do you feel about how the voice, how they do the voice in the movie? I think it's great. I think it's great too.
0: Um I was reading the book the other night. I was actually reading this scene in particular. Yeah. And the way Also, there's there's tons of details in this scene down to like the green light. Yeah uh from the instrument panel of the Ornithopter that are ripped straight from the books. And I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, but the the sound of the voice uh is is pretty close to how it's described in the books. It's mm-hmm. very animalistic and um otherworldly. Yeah. And there's like multiple voices in there.
2: Yeah. And it sounds kind of like creepy and like demonic, uh, which I think is cool and fun that it doesn't like it's not pleasant to hear, (laughs) you know. Um, But yeah, so so they've gagged Jessica so she can't use it on them. Um, So Paul tries using the voice. One of the Harkonnens is is deaf. So that presents a challenge to Mm -hmm. them using the voice. Right. Because it's not going to work on that guy. Um, So Paul tries using the voice basically being like, you know, take off uh, her gag um and initially it doesn't work and I just love I love this Harkonnen (laughs) so initially he says something not using the voice he just like is talking shit Mm -hmm. and he gets like smacked or whatever but then he tries using the voice and I love this Harkonnen just standing up and going over to him like he's almost about to do it like the voice worked and then he just turns and fucking socks Timothee Chalamet in the gut so fucking hard <laughs> um, just like <laughs> plants his entire yeah. fist like fully in like his bread basket and I was like fuck like that <laughs> he's going to be feeling that in his balls. <laughs>
1: there's
0: there's another detail to the scene that we the uh, detail to this movie that we haven't talked about cuz there's a billion fucking things to talk about in this movie. Uh from the books they have different languages. Yeah. To, to there's like the Atreides battle language, right. which is something they use yeah. during wartime. Um, there's lots of different languages that they, that they use. Mm. They have hand signals in this movie that are subtitled. Right. That are used in multiple parts of this movie. Yeah. And it's awesome. I love that detail. Yeah. Uh, So Jessica uses it here to tell Paul silently to adjust his pitch. Yeah. To use the voice on these guys. Yep. Um,
2: so he does it again. Yes. He takes, he takes his cue for mommy. And, uh, and it works this time. Uh, the guy takes the gag off of, uh, Jessica and Jessica, who's better at the voice is like fucking kill that deaf guy, (laughs) which he does. (laughs) Right. Um, and then, uh, she says, give me the knife. And he does. And she just stabs him with it. It fucking rocks. It's so good.
0: The, uh, the, the thopter, uh, lands and it's been locked down basically. Yeah. So they can't use it. They find uh, a frem kit, which is a kit to survive in the deep desert. Yeah, that the the fremen make. Yes. it's left there by Doctor Yue. They find uh, a symbol that they associate with Doctor Yue because it's on his it's a tattoo on his forehead. Yep, and that's how they find it. Another great little minor detail from the books that I love.
2: Uh, seeing in this movie. Yep. And they take off into the desert. Yep. They they're they're going off to f- their plan is to find the Fremen because they're like, well we can't go back where we came from because there's a million bombs being dropped on everything. So into the desert to find some potential help we go. Yeah. Um and then they they they, they get set up
0: in a tent. Oh yeah. And then this next sequence is intercut with uh, we're catching up with the Baron and yes. Duke Leto. Yes. Um And Duke Leto is still paralyzed. And the Baron is in the dining hall. Yes. Eating all his food.
2: Just slurping up this food. He is like Denethor eating (laughs) cherry tomatoes. (laughs) Just fucking... (laughs) It's fucking disgusting. Uh, uh, Stellan Skarsgård mouth noises. And it's very good. Sing me a song, (laughs) Hobbit. And and also... uh, so, sorry now i'm just thinking about denethor um <laughs> uh and and also in this scene uh to add insult to injury they have uh stripped uh leto naked um so we it, we get some real uh revealing side view of naked oscar isaac kind of passed out in this chair at the table and um uh, what what can you say other than uh what a what a hunk of beef that guy what a is snack that man what is. a prime mm. cut mm. um but yeah <laughs> so um Baron Harkonnen uh floats uh over the table they bring in doctor doctor Yue right um and doctor Yue is like hey so like I did what you asked uh time for you to hold up your end of the bargain and I really like the shot where the Baron um starts uh flying uh toward doctor Yue because uh he's Dr. Ua is in the foreground in focus or maybe it's like the back of Oscar Isaac's head but the foreground yeah. is in focus and the background's out of focus and you just see the out of focus kind of silhouette of the Baron just extend into the air and then he flies across the table I like how you see his feet kind of knocking into dishes and kind of like scraping across the top of the table and he like hovers down in front of Dr. Ua, and he's like oh yeah so uh about that deal what did i say i was gonna do again and he's like well you said you would release my wife from her suffering (laughs) and in this moment both in the book and in the movie you're kind of like dr Yue, what did you think was gonna happen here dude (laughs) like sorry they abducted your wife and we're like okay you have to do this thing and then i will release her from her suffering don't you think that that is uh suspicious wording weird way to word that (laughs) <laughs> Don't you think that that sounds like they're maybe just going to kill her anyway? Which is, of course, what has happened.
0: Um, and uh, stone scar. Scar goes. So join her. Yeah. And then cuts his throat.
2: He, no. Okay. Oh wait. He, does he snap his neck? He he cut. Okay. This was the thing I noticed last night for the first time watching this. He does cut his throat. He cuts his throat so much that he cuts Dr. Yue's head clean off. And the reason that I know this is because he cuts his throat, there's a thump, and then the camera uh, changes angles to where you're looking down the table and Baron Harkonnen is in the background. And the bottom of... Yue's head is not visible. It's obscured by something, but you can see the top of his head, and Baron Harkonnen is holding it by the hair, and then he drops it, and there is a second thump. So he has cut Dr. Ua's head all the way off, which I had never noticed before.
0: <laughs> this movie's PG 13.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's a PG 13 decapitation, but it's still, if you watch closely, it is a
0: decapitation. There were people who were like, this should be R, and I yeah. wasn't one of those people. I was like, I think this. I think the way that it's presented, it's it it works well for the PG thirteen uh, rating. It makes sense for what Denny has in mind for the universe. Uh, but but a lot of the book fans are like, Dune's weird and fucked up and violent and yeah. there's a bunch of weird sex in it, so it should be R. And watching it last night, I was like, oh, this is fine. But now I'm thinking about it, and I'm like. Maybe this should have been ours. It
2: kind of would have been cool if you had fully seen him <laughs> cut Dr. Yue's head off and also seen Dave Bautista knocking some heads off. Yeah. yeah. Um, but noticing that for the first time last night, I was so delighted because I was like, oh fuck, he doesn't just cut his throat. He he fucking cuts this dude's head all the way off. Um, it rocks.
0: Yeah. And then um, uh, Duke Leto bites down on the tooth and yes. says, here I am, here I remain. Breeze out this poison gas. This is intercut with... Paul in the tent looking through the kit that he found, like the, the, the kit that he finds, and he found the uh the ducal signet ring. Right. And I love that uh, I love that these two scenes are 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 intercut with each other because it's like now the future of House Atreides is preserved as the old uh the old guard of House Atreides is dying. Yeah. Uh it's going to it's going to continue on. Yeah. Um later, what happens is these guys who look like uh, they're from Monsters Inc. I'm glad you the Monsters Mon- Inc. suits. I'm
2: glad you said the Monsters Inc. thing too, because that's all I was thinking. They literally, yeah, look like the hazmat suits from the fucking government agency in Monsters yeah. Inc. <laughs> they
0: they they uh, enter into the dining hall with like this machine to clean the air. And that we find that the Baron has basically activated his suspensors and flown up to the ceiling yes. as far as he can get to get as far away from the poison as he can. Yeah,
2: I love that visual of him as like this like huddled little mass on the on the ceiling. It, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now we have the the scene in the
0: tent where Paul has uh, his vision of the future and
2: uh, some great acting from from Timothy Chalamet here. Probably my favorite. Scene of acting from him in this movie
1: is this tense scene. Yeah.
2: Um, I think this is this is the strongest moment of his performance. Um, his performance, by the way, just to kind of uh briefly share my thoughts on it overall, um, I think he's good casting for this role. I think he's a good Polytraides. Um, he is one of my least favorite performances in this movie uh even though i like it i think that there are so many stronger performances in this movie that his ends up feeling uh maybe a little bit uh comparatively simplistic um but that being said i think that's totally fine for this character right i think it's fine for this world to be a little bit more um uh kind of uh vibrant uh in terms of characters around the edges and for have us to have our main focal point be a little bit less, uh, you know, interesting and dynamic and charismatic mm-hmm. because that's sort of the role that Paul plays in the book as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so this performance all overall, I wouldn't say I love Timothy Chalamet's performance in this movie, but it works for it. It does what it needs to do. And in occasional moments, I really like it.
0: Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. Uh, it's tough because he has to do half of a character arc in this movie. Yeah. Um it is rough. But uh, and it's also a coming of age tale, so he has to grow from a child to the new Duke of House Atreides to what he's going to become in the second second film. Right. In like two and a half hours or whatever. So uh I I think he does a good job uh making that arc very clear. Yeah. Um and in this sequence he's having a vision of um of his of, of warriors Fighting the Sartakar in the future, burning bodies, fights on Kaladan. The there's the most dodgy looking CGI shot in this movie where yeah. we see uh, a warrior fight all of these guys, and then the mask clips up to reveal it's him, and it yes. kind of looks like he's Iron Man. Yes. it's the, kind of the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man head look. It,
2: it is very much a CGI
0: Marvel helmet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the worst looking shot in this movie. Yeah. Um, And uh, so it's basically he has this vision of, as he says, a holy war spreading across the universe like an unquenchable fire. Yes. And is breaking down and crying and and unable to really he's trying to process this moment of like realizing that there's going to be a war and and violence carried out in his name in the future.
2: And he's like he can't see a way to avoid it. Yeah. Is kind of the thing that's freaking him out, right? Where he's basically like, I'm looking into the future and this is all I'm seeing, right? Um, and Lady Jessica tries to calm him down and he like lashes out at her. I really like that moment of his performance. He he uses the voice on her. Uh Uh,
0: it's a really, really impactful, scary moment. Yes. For both for us as the audience and for Jessica, because this kind of starts her her arc in the second half of the movie, in this part of the movie, Mm -hmm. where she's kind of unable to come to grips with what her son is becoming
2: right it's sort of uh, and, and I it's think,
0: it's done wordlessly in a lot of places yes
2: it is and i really want to uh emphasize how great rebecca ferguson is in this movie i think she is such phenomenal casting for lady jessica yeah um and i love rebecca ferguson i think she's phenomenal she she's just... the
0: standout performance for me in this. yes
2: just side sidebar about how much i love rebecca ferguson uh a movie that we may eventually do on the podcast dr do- sleep um she plays the villain in that whose name is rose the hat and it's a direct thing from the the stephen king book that that character wears a the stupidest fucking hat you've ever seen <laughs> and she is su- simultaneously supposed to be extremely uh, terrifying and intimidating, while wearing this fucking dumbass hat. And Rebecca Ferguson in that movie somehow pulls it off. Her performance in that movie is so good that it is more powerful than the dumbass fucking hat that they have her wear the entire time. So that really endeared her to me as an actress in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dune has very much continued that. Where I'm like, what a fucking powerhouse! <laughs> I'll also shout out, she's amazing in the Mission Impossible series. Mm. She's in the
0: fifth one. Uh, and then uh, she had a, a role in the most recent one uh, and fucking the awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I would love it. Love it. If she like uh, blew my head off with a sniper
2: rifle from 500 <laughs> yards away. Uh, we love Rebecca Ferguson. Yes. And she's great here uh, in the, in this scene in the tent. She's also great later when you were talking about her kind of reckoning with um, yeah. Those wordless moments of her performance where she's like, uh um basically it's the thing from earlier where she's like uh conflicted between how do i be a mother and a bene Jesseret, and these kind of are coming into conflict with each other later in the movie it's basically like oh the the bene Jesseret part of this is sort of winning where it's like he is the queen sats Hatterach, probably mm-hmm. and you can kind of see her be like i'm not sure that this is actually what i wanted Right, it's like she did this. She is responsible for making him the way he is, <laughs> right? Um, but you can see her kind of be like, "I, I kind of wish I had my son back." And I don't really know who this person that he's becoming. I don't know who this is. Yeah, and it's really scary to her. Which, yeah, a lot of it's done without dialogue, and it's fucking great. It's so good. Yeah, just really quick, let's talk about Muad. That Malice is so cute. It's so cute. Uh, uh, there's there's a there's a detail of
0: its ears where you see the blood vessels in the ears and the sweat trickling down yes and it's like gathering the sweat to eat to to drink the drink the sweat yeah to uh to, to hydrate itself basically because it's the fucking desert yes uh looks completely real yes. photoreal.
2: yes it is an incredible cgi uh little little mouse creature here um and yeah the the thing where it like gathers its sweat and then puts it in its mouth simultaneously an amazing uh survival technique for this uh mouse that has uh, evolved to exist in this very hostile environment and also the cutest fucking thing you've ever seen while it does it because it's like using its little hands to like brush the moisture on its gums and it's like it just it's he's so adorable yeah he's so cute he's got a big long tail he's got huge uh huge ears he kind of hops around um and uh i, I wanted to mention Muad'Dib. Uh, which is what this mouse is called that's yes. the name of the thing. And of the mouse.
0: Uh, it's it's a phrase that you might hear in the second movie You might
2: <laughs> Um so yeah then we go to the ecological testing station um and with Duncan Idaho and and Liat Kynes And um basically Liat Kynes is being like um you know like we're we're gonna lay low and figure out what to do and lady jessica is very much like you need to figure out a way to get us off the planet mm-hmm. and Leah leokines is like all right like I'll, I'll help you do that and then paul is like you also have to tell the rest of the great houses like the rest of the kingdoms in the in the empire right you need to tell them what happened here so that we can all fucking get back at the emperor for what he did to my dad right um and Leah Kynes is like more reticent about that she's not like yeah immediately Mm -hmm. she kind of has to be talked into it a little bit so paul kind of takes charge here and really for the first time sort of becomes the duke in this scene um where he's like uh you know trying to convince her and, and sway her to to do this and eventually she does agree um and while they're having this conversation uh, the there's the the Fremen kind of in the outside area, the the ecological testing station, um are making spice coffee, which I do like the little piece of this that we see depicted, mm-hmm. them kind of spitting into this yes. space coffee maker, <laughs> it kind of rules. Um, and as they're doing this, in the background we see some sardaukar like come over the like uh lip of the um this big cavernous area that they're in, um, and then like we cut. Cop- Back to where the Fremen were, and they're all gone. Yeah, um, because they fucking know they're being sneaked snuck up on. Yeah, and the Sardaukar just silently
0: descend down through this uh, this cavern. Great visual, area, and they looks amazing. Yeah, they they start creeping across the sand floor, and then the Fremen uh, bursts uh, up through the sand and start fighting them.
2: Yeah. And so then back inside, uh, like they're all here in the commotion, uh, Leah Kynes is like, I got a fucking secret passageway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, opens up and Duncan Idaho, uh, realizes that, you know, they're under attack goes out into the hallway, uh, opens the door, sees like the Fremen fighting the Sardaukar. And then he turns around and, uh, Paul immediately is like, oh, he's going to like shut the door and buy us time and fight these guys and join the fight to, to fight these guys off um so then paul because like him and duncan have like we talked about before they they do a good job of establishing their like relationship and rapport these guys like each other so paul's very upset it's like the the sweet little moment where he's yep.
1: like duncan
0: no and duncan salutes him and closes the door yeah and uh, starts fighting these dudes and yeah takes down like six or seven of them yeah and then gets stabbed and uh falls down and then more guys come in. There's this guy that has this giant laser yes. that he's going to use to try to bore through the bore through the door. And uh, as Paul and Jessica and Liat are trying to leave through the passageway. Um, and then Duncan Idaho gets back up yes. and, and screams, pulls the knife out of his yeah. chest and starts fighting these dudes again.
2: Yes, and the knife goes all the way through him. Yeah. So he pulls it all the way back out uh and just has a gaping chest wound
0: he's like i gotta that that uh, that salute to paul he gets is like see you buddy i gotta pull a boromir
2: yeah yeah it's <laughs> it's fucking rad it's fucking rad he he uh ends up murking like four more dudes yeah after he pulls the knife out of his chest it's really cool uh but eventually he succumbs to his wounds and uh that's that's all we see of duncan idaho Uh, For now. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's also... uh, We're
0: also approaching the end of uh, Dr. Kine's story arc. Yes. Um, They split up. Paul and Jessica take off in an ornithopter, but we follow Dr. Kine's as she calls a sandworm with a a machine called the Thumper that basically creates vibrations in the sand, and... um, the Sardaukar show up and stab her in the back, and this is where we get there's a burst of water. Yes, and that's water for blood because it, this the 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 knife has penetrated the still suit. Yes, and uh, the water shoots out much like blood
2: would squirt out, and I thought that was a really great way to get around that. It's it's both genius to get around the the R rating, um, and also there is something especially because it is dr Kynes who like has this specific relationship with the fremen where like water is so sacred to them it is also just like so visually impactful that it is water you know Mm -hmm. because like water is such a precious kind of holy thing to the fremen yeah um and seeing it spilled violently this way is like uh it just it feels like it has more weight than blood in this moment. Weird. I think so too. Yeah. Um, I think water was the right choice. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she's been stabbed, and she's she's dying. The car kind of, um, uh, you know, standing around her as she's uh about to um uh fucking croak. <laughs> um, and the thumper that has attracted the has attracted the sandworm. So the sandworm is is getting closer, and she starts pounding her fist on the sand rhythmically too. Um, and the fucking, in both the book and the movie, uh, even though they are handled totally differently, Dr. Kind's death is my, I think my favorite scene in both. Um, and in this movie, the way they do it is she's, she's banging on the sand and, uh, one of the Sardaukars says like essentially like something like that's what you get for betraying the emperor or like the emperor entrusted this you with this and you betrayed him right um and her response is i serve one master his name is Shai halud and then we get another fucking uh majestic desert butthole (laughs) opening up um beneath uh dr kynes and the and the sardau and it fucking it's just starts swallowing them up. Yeah. And then we cut away, which I love that it cuts away before you even get a really good look at the worm. Um, because it's like, you know, what's happening. And then we're like away from the scene. Um, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah.
0: It's great. It's a great moment. A uh, great moment. It's also a smaller, it's like a smaller sandworm too. It's
2: yeah. just its just enough to eat these these three or four people. Yeah, which they do say in the spice harvester scene that they call out that that one's a big one, Yeah, <laughs> right? So maybe this is more like a, a regular size It's a little baby. Yeah. It's a little baby sandworm. <laughs> um, then, uh, so we cut back to... Uh,
0: Paul and Jessica in the smaller ornithopter. It's a two seater. It looks different than the others. Yeah. It's got this like bubble canopy or this bubble cockpit. It's really cool. I love it. Anyway, yeah. I-, I could talk about the ornithopters for this whole episode. Yeah. Um, and they, they I t- think it's an
2: older model maybe, because yeah. it's also kind of a lemon, which yeah. we'll get to. <laughs>
0: uh, they take off and there's a sandstorm coming as uh, like, they see more ships in the rear view following them. Yeah. the Sardaukar
2: are chasing them down.
0: Yeah. They lead them into the sandstorm. Uh, this sandstorm is beautiful by the way. Yeah. This massive, this massive cloud of dust. Um, and they get into the sandstorm and the thopter starts spinning out of control and the wings start failing and the glass starts cracking and we get like this beautiful effect across the windows of the glass cracking. Yeah. um, and we get some close up of those analog dials just spinning and going haywire. Yep. Uh, it's it's really awesome. Uh, Jessica starts reciting the litany against fear again. We do cut in the middle of this to catch up with the baron. Yes. Uh, um we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll finish the sandstorm first. Paul like manages to get the thopter out above the sandstorm and into this glide that's really it's a really beautiful moment where he's like above the sandstorm mm-hmm. some of the wings aren't working um and the whole ship is rattling and it's like really tense and really scary and then Hans zimmer like puts this nice beautiful music over it too. yes it's a great great moment yeah uh and then the wings finally give out and it goes into a a barrel roll and crashes into the sand yeah But let's check in with the Baron.
2: Yes. So uh, while this has been happening, the Baron has been uh, taking a a little charcoal oil bath. I assume, I assume there's charcoal involved because it's pitch black and also charcoal is supposed to like remove toxins. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it does sort of look like he's bathing in a huge pool of balsamic vinegar and olive oil. It does look like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, the other Harkonnens here, uh, there's like some, some servants, which some of the, or probably because they're the Harkonnens, not servants, but slaves in fact, uh, would be the situation um, because that's the thing that they don't talk about really in the movie. But in the book, they're very explicit that the Harkonnens are also very involved in the slave trade. Um, So... Uh there's there's some f- folks here who are tending to him and uh Robin uh uh Dave Bautista's character is also there and he's basically giving a report to um this pool of uh salad dressing <laughs> being like being like we chased him into a sandstorm uh there's no way anything could have survived you know that those storms like leave nothing living behind right um and uh the <laughs> the baron comes out of his Pool. Uh, it's a great visual, yeah, um, and it also just looks so fucking gross and disgusting, uh, which is awesome. um And he's like still sort of fucked up from the poison, and he's basically like, "Okay, good. Like, we don't have to worry about this anymore." I'm like, "Dude, go confirm the kill." Right, right. You would think that he would not be satisfied with this, but yeah. it's it, for some reason he's he's like, "Okay, fine, good enough." Um, maybe it's. I mean, the Harkonnens did rule Arrakis for eighty years, yeah, and
0: I th- we know that Arrakis is. The desert is really deadly on Arrakis, so he's probably like right to assume it. But also, confirm the kill, buddy. Yeah,
2: yeah. It definitely seems uh, like it would have been prudent to at least bring back some evidence that they had in fact died. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then we're back with uh, with Paul and uh, Jessica. Um, they climb out of the the ornithopter wreck and basically Paul's like, we got to head right for the rocks because of the worms. Um, and so they, they sandwalk, right. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, walk without rhythm so as to not attract the worms. Um, they do a great job both with the choreography of the sandwalk and with uh, all of the performances of the actors who are sandwalking in this movie, um, not making it look like goofy horse shit, <laughs> which I feel like is a real pitfall potentially with doing the sandwalk in Dune, right? Where it's like the way they shoot it, they shoot it from uh, a lot of uh, like um, high angles and usually from behind and stuff, um, and they don't show too much of it at once like uninterrupted yeah they just show little bits of it and i'm like that's the way to do it keep us kind of far away um and mostly like the characters are existing as kind of silhouettes right um and cut away frequently um because if you just hold a camera on an actor doing this for too long it starts to look very stupid (laughs) um but uh then they they get to the uh rocks and Um, they're basically like, okay, we're, we have to like find the Fremen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, Paul is also starting to have visions
0: of a Fremen in this, this part of the movie. Yeah. And there's voices telling him to follow, follow the friend. Yes. And, um, this is, uh, a character named Jamis. Yeah. Who's going to come into play here in a minute. Um, but this vision is, is basically Jamis teaching him the way of the desert. um, the way of the fremen yeah and um we get another great scene where he's talking about like we have to the the way we have to flow with the process we have to
2: let it a process cannot be understood by stopping it understanding must flow understanding must move with the flow of the process which is the first law of mentat yes <laughs> but in this in this version of of dune uh it's a it's kind of a fremen yeah. teaching we ne-
0: we a- get another great shot yeah. of like that sand displacement uh, like the sand pooling up and becoming almost liquid yeah. beautiful stuff yep um but basically paul is seeing possible futures yeah he's experiencing possible futures and this one is telling him to follow Jamas
2: yeah um, and uh, so then they, they camp out overnight uh, on these rocks. Um, they also change into their still suits, which uh, many people on the internet have already uh, had this observation. Um, but when they're changing into uh, their still suits, there is a moment where Tim- Timothy Chalamet takes his shirt off and him and Rebecca Fer- Ferguson are facing away from each other. And then she kind of looks over her shoulder at him and then like turns back around. And the look on her face is very much that she's acting the thing that we talked about earlier, yeah. which is basically like this was my darling, my darling boy. And now he's this person I don't really recognize. And like, he's seeing the future and I don't really get what's going on with him. And out of context, without knowing that that's internally what's happening, it does sort of seem like she's a little horny for her own son here. (laughs) It does. Um, But, and also, you know, uh, it's not something I've
0: put past Frank Herbert. Right, true. uh, To to put in his books. Um, But I think the interpretation that like, she's now seeing her, what has become of her son for the first time. Right. Um, I think that's what's happening here. Yes. So <laughs> I a... don't
2: think she, I, to be clear, I don't think Rebecca Ferguson is playing that she wants to fuck her own yep. son, nor do I think that that was the intent in the movie, um, but it does. Ha- it has definitely been memed a little bit.
0: <laughs> and There's a great subtle moment that shows us how Paul's prescience is awakening, awakening mm-hmm. where uh, he's complete. He, he has his back turned to her the whole time. Yep. His back to her the whole time. And after she looks at him and looks back, he looks back at her. So he knows that she's been looking at her.
2: Yep. They stay until dark um, because they're going to travel by night, which is what the Fremen do because it's less hot, right? Um, So they wait until dark and i do really like the uh the digital effect of the the twin moons on, yeah. on Arrakis. um i like that they made it a big moon and a little moon it's not like two moons of similar size there's like a huge one and then kind of a little tiny one <laughs> that's like a, it's little it's uh don't speak to me or my son ever again yeah <laughs> is the visual and i think this is also some day for night
0: stuff like it looks really good yeah uh there's no there's no stars in the sky and i kind of just chalk that up to the the atmosphere of Arrakis is just full. There's so much dust right. that you can't really see.
2: Yeah, the this the night sky. The atmosphere is so full of spice. Yeah, yeah. that you can't see the stars. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that as a read on that. That's pretty rad. Uh, uh, which by the way, while we're on the while we're on the twin moons thing. Uh, hey hey Frank, I I <laughs> I got another cease and desist from you, but. Uh, I gotta tell you, my lawyers have been looking over this and they clearly pointed out that while you created a desert planet that uh, your little uh, prophet boy who can see the future lives on uh, and it has two moons, I put my little prophet boy who can see the future and has magical powers on a desert planet with two suns. And don't you think that that's not only completely different, but actually a little bit better. You know what I do with
0: all these cease and desist letters? As I stack them up in my bathroom and I use them to
2: wipe my ass. <laughs> I stopped buying toilet paper because in addition to all these cease and desists, I can just wipe my ass with the pages of all your shitty little books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, then it's nighttime. uh, they decide to uh you know, travel across some of the sand um uh, to another rock outcropping. They've seen vegetation on this other rock outcropping, and they know that vegetation doesn't grow except where fremen tend to it. So they're basically like, if we go to where the shrubs are, uh fremen will be nearby, right? um so they're they're crossing the desert, doing the little sandwalk. um, but then, uh despite the sandwalk, Uh, A worm shows up Um, and uh, they uh, like initially are like, okay, like, is it going to pass? Is it going to come this way? And it's coming this way. So they're just like, fuck it. Run. Yeah. They book it. (laughs) Yep. um, And this, we, we get a first,
0: our first really good look at uh, the giant sand buttholes. Yes. um, As, as we see the worm emerge from the sand. Yes. And it kind of just looks at them. Yeah.
2: The mystic butthole of, of shy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: i i'm not i'm not in love with the worm designs hmm. um i've seen i think it's because i've seen a lot of fan art of dune over right. the years and there's some really just inventive and creative and awesome designs of the sandworm and this feels
2: maybe a little bit too simplistic for me it is simple because essentially what we have with the sandworm uh with the the head of the sandworm is basically yeah it's like a a ring of like the scaly skin that's on the outside right and then another ring of those uh like uh kind of fiber teeth uh they remind me of like whale teeth yeah like the teeth of like a blue whale that they use to like strain the krill or whatever it's like that type of teeth in like a big circle and there's like multiple like rows and layers of them right um but it is just kind of just two circles right um and then the outside is kind of yeah this leathery scaly skin um but it doesn't have like they don't do much with color or um and it is sort of like kind of just the one texture Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know um so i get what you're saying i think the simplistic design sort of works for me to the point where i don't really have any complaints about how the worms look because there is something about the simplicity of the design and the way that they are shown in the movie, um where it feels so primal and ancient, and the worms sort of match the brutalist minimalism of a lot of the architecture of this world, yeah, that's right a good point. Where it's like this seems like it is um so old and so powerful um and and so like formidable just due to its scope right that the simplicity of its design it's like yeah if it was designed any more than this if they had over designed it it would distract from how fucking big it is you know and it's like that's the thing the thing is how big it is right um and so i think it kind of totally works for me um I I also, there are also other sandworm designs that probably would have hit just as well as this, but I kind of have no complaints about it.
0: Yeah, I think the scale is great um, as well. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of those sandworm designs go very outlandish. A lot yeah. of the fan art about Dune and a lot of the criticisms that people have with this movie stem from how outlandish and fantastical and weird and strange all of the fan art is the way the universe is depicted in the books. Yeah. Uh, obviously stuff like the Lynch film is very weird in a lot of places with its design. Yeah. I mean, the Yodorowski stuff that never yeah. came to screen was all super weird. And this movie takes, like you said, a, a little bit more of a the, the, the brutalist architecture, uh, more of a simplistic approach that I think also works for me. Yeah, And I think going too weird with it just wouldn't fit with Denny's style. Yeah. And... Um, this movie does such a good job of translating. I mean, okay, we've both read the book. Yeah. We can't forget that we've read the book while watching the movie. Right. Um, So I don't know how this appears to someone who hasn't read the books before, but visually this movie tells the story so well. Yeah. That um, I think if we had gone too outlandish with things, we would have distracted from the, the simplicity and the purity of how this movie tells its story. Which is with the visuals, right? We're not spending yeah. a lot of time setting up the history of the Imperium through exposition or uh, anything like that, or talking about the prophecies and stuff through exposition. We're telling that story visually. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think uh, the more simplistic visual style uh, works. And it's also, it's still beautiful. Like, yes. if this is still a movie that is brimming with detail.
2: Yes. It's a, it's a beautiful simplicity and it's a compelling, it's compelling in its simplicity, Yes, which to go back to the worm is, I talked about how it's basically two circles. It also, and this really struck me this most recent time watching it, it holds on that shot of the worm's open mouth for a while. And you get like, uh, there's a wide shot where you have Paul in the foreground standing in front of it. And then it moves to a closer shot that's basically like you're kind of in the worm's mouth. And even though there's not a lot of variation in what you're looking at in terms of like what the inside of the worm's mouth looks like, it's basically just those rows of teeth. It is so, it's such an arresting visual, right? Where it, it does sort of give you the feeling of, uh, this this is gonna sound insane, especially to people who haven't read the book, but it, looking into the mouth of the worm kind of is like, gazing into infinity right mm-hmm. it's like staring it's staring into the abyss you know and it, it do, again it does that thing that i think you... staring into the butthole yes, the, yes. The, the butthole of the void the butthole of the void <laughs> um, the sphincter
0: of the unconscious <laughs> i don't know where this voice came from i'm
2: not sure either but i like it i like this uh this marianne williamson persona <laughs> that you've <laughs> developed um But yeah, so uh, all that to say, I think it it ties back to a thing that I think is very important, at least to me, because it was one of the most interesting parts of the book to me, which is these worms are simultaneously uh, creatures that are, uh, if not flesh and blood, at least biological, right? They're they're biological animals, right? But also they're kind of divine. Well, and I think that also
0: I also feel that with how long. They hold on that shot, yeah, and the worm doesn't gobble them up, right? And eventually, it's called off by another thumper, but it holds there for a while, and you get the sense that there is some sort of spiritual connection between Paul and the worm. Like the worm is recognizing this spiritual quality within Paul, yes, and holding there for a moment.
2: And the worm, the worm does kind of it has this like uh um thing in its throat. Uh, these kind of flaps or scales or something that kind of close together, right? Um, and it uses these to make a noise, and it is almost like it's talking to him. It does like this goop, 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 goop thing, um, and yeah, it's it's you're right. It's almost like it's saying something to him, mm-hmm. right? Um, which also, just uh, to to get real weird about the worms for a second, because they're basically made of spice. And spice is the thing that makes uh the uh prescience really unlock in Paul. I'm like we it's kind of unclear in the book how much intelligence the worms do or don't have, yeah, and it is. and kind of how they interact with the human characters in the world. And I'm like, there might be something where the worms kind of do understand uh who paul is because the worms might be prescient to some extent right like because they live their whole lives as kind of uh the the creators of the spice uh it's worm shit (laughs) that's what spice is right and they're sort of like made of this thing i'm like maybe they also kind of live in the past and the future at the same time uh weird thought i had about the sandworms um anyway Um, but yeah, then the worm gets called off by another thumper that goes off. Uh, and Paul and Jessica are basically like, Hey, that was another thumper. Like somebody's nearby. Um, and so this is where they, they meet the Fremen. They meet the Fremen. Uh, they run into Stilgar again. Um, Javier Bardem,
0: great casting for Stilgar.
2: Yes. He's great in this movie. I really like Javier Bardem's performance in this movie. I I like him in general. Yeah. There's great. He's not, there's not, he's
0: not in the movie a ton. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing him in part two. Yeah. Uh, because Cause he the... takes on a bigger role. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, he's, he does really, a really great job. Uh, and we also see Jamis here for the yep. first time. And Jamis is very much like, let's just kill them and move on. Let's take the water from their
2: bodies and go. Yeah. And, and just... then, I really like Timotei's reaction to, to Jamis being such an asshole immediately because he's kind of taken off guard by it because he's like, I've been having visions of this guy. And he was like my friend. He's like, what, why is he being such a dick? It's sort of interesting to see his reaction. Like, Hey, like I had a future vision of you and you're not acting the way you're supposed to. How do I deal with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: Stilgar says like, hold on. Like, this boy, his father had respect for me. This boy has respect for me. Um, he's young enough to learn our ways, but the woman is too old. Too old to begin the training. Too old <laughs> to begin the training. <laughs> um, not a not a slave boy from Tatooine, you are. <laughs> uh,
2: and we're not going to do the George Lucas bit again. <laughs> we can't um (laughs) it's it's (laughs) gonna be too long um Um, so uh but but they're like but the the mother right uh jessica is 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 too old so she's we're just gonna kill her right Mm -hmm. um and uh i do like uh jessica initially kind of tries to bargain with them Mm -hmm. here where she's basically like hey if you take us off world we'll pay you so much fucking money uh like we'll we'll make you like so rich and he's basically like uh, you know what what could you possibly have to offer but the water that the water in your bodies right because it's like for the fremen like money means literally nothing yeah. the only thing that matters the only resource scarce enough to matter is is moisture is water right so he's basically like i don't want your fucking money i want i want the water in those guts (laughs) (laughs) um and uh so then he like comes up to her to try and kill her and she immediately fucking disarms him and like gets the gets the knife on him yeah
0: yeah Paul also uh, takes out a few of the other Fremen, disarms a few of the other Fremen, gets up to a vantage point and uh, pulls out a pistol. Yeah, that he's uh, like stole from one of the Fremen. Yeah, to uh, get a bead on him. And then we meet Zendaya. Yep. And uh, Zendaya is like, I would have killed you. I would have killed you. Put that little pistol away, boy. Yeah. Um,
2: (laughs) I would not have let you hurt my friends. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, And uh, Stilgar's like, oh, hold on we didn't know, we didn't know that you were a Sayadina. Yes. We yeah. didn't know that you were a weirding woman. Yes. And a fighter. <laughs> yes.
2: I do love him saying, why didn't you say you were a weirding woman? <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is, this is again, the reference to the, uh, the legends that the Bene Gesserit have put in place. Yeah. So there are legends about the Bene Gesserit that the Fremen have, uh, adopted as, uh, adopted an, into their beliefs. Yeah. And it is solely for the purpose of the Bene Gesserit gaining power. Yes. Uh, over, over this culture. Yeah. So, um, they're like, okay, cool, you can you can join us. Yeah. But Jamis still wants
2: uh still wants blood. Right. And, and he's, he's
0: also like, still she disarmed
2: you, Silgar, so why
0: should I listen to you? Right.
2: And so he he invokes the the right of Amtal, which is trial by combat, uh, and it's to the death. Yeah. Paul also has a vision here of him being stabbed by Jamis, yeah. um,
0: where we hear the the voiceover. Paul Atreides must die for the Kwisatz Haderach to arise. There's a, a ghostly voice telling him this. I do want to call out the actor playing Jamis. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to butcher this man's name, and I apologize. His name is Babs Alusin Moken. Great performance from this guy. Yes. Um, His line deliveries are great. I love... He goes, where is the outworlder? Yeah. I love that delivery. Yeah. Um, there's moments where he's really quiet, but during the fight, he's like screaming and beating his chest. Yeah. He's Uh,
2: the intensity. Yeah. uh, When he's, when he's in the fight with Paul, um, it's, it makes this, which is, we're basically at the end of the movie movie. It makes this otherwise sort of anticlimactic scene that we're ending this movie on because it's only half of a story. It turns it into an effective climax because he's so intense. So yeah, I think his performance is a big part of this working. Yeah, as the as kind of the final set piece of this
1: movie.
0: Yeah, um, he says, uh, "May thy knife chip and shatter," which is returned with Paul doing the Atreides salute. Yeah, um, and. Paul easily, uh, you know, dispatches him a couple times and holds the knife at his throat and asks, asks, Do you yield? Do you yield? And, uh, Jessica says to Stilgar like Paul's never killed a man before. Yeah,
2: I also really like Stilgar during one of the those moments yeah. where he's uh he's asking uh Janus to yield because originally or the first time he does it, all of the Fremen get really upset mm-hmm. because for them this is a sacred uh a sacred rite of trial by combat that they know has to end in death, right? So Paul giving him the opportunity to surrender is seen as an insult, right? So all the Fremen kind of get up in arms the first time, and then Stilgar's like, "Hey, calm down. He doesn't know our ways." right it's it's fine right um and then the second time uh i think uh or no it's right before lady jessica says he's never killed a man before still goes is he toying with him because he comes (laughs) he keeps doing it and it seems like
0: uh it seems like the fremen are shocked that he's able to uh you know best him so many times especially because in the rest of the movie, we've built up the Fremen as such a deadly, yeah. a deadly force of warriors. Like even Duncan Idaho said when he found them, he fought a Fremen warrior and has never come this close to dying. Yeah. So the, And this I, is
2: the guy who kills like six Sardacar yeah. later in
0: the movie. Yeah.
2: And they're supposed to be the best of the best. So
0: like the Fremen are like on another level. Yeah. So Twinkie little Paul uh Paul Atreides, Twinkie, <laughs> twinkie little Timothy Chalamet, yes. uh easily getting the upper hand on Jama several times is a big shock to them.
2: Yeah. Um, and so eventually Paul, um, he, he, there's some, some great moments, uh, of, uh, just the camera on Timothy's face and uh, him, uh, doing a pretty decent acting job in this moment, um, where you kind of see him decide what he's going to do, right? Where he's already seen this prescient path where, uh, Jameis is his friend and teaches him stuff, but he's like, I don't see a way out of this other than killing this guy. So I'm going, I'm going to have to kill this dude. Right. Um, and he does. He, I like how quick and kind of um, uh, non uh, flat, like not flashy it is. Right. Um, because he basically like dodges one of Jameis' attacks and then just stabs him in the back <laughs> and he's just instantly dead.
0: There's a great little moment here. That's kind of in slow motion as Paul walks away from the fight and we see the Fremen all sort of pat him on the back as he's like accepted by them. And Chani played by Zendaya who is really good in this movie? She just has like two she's lines. She's barely in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't really comment on her performance. Right. but But uh, she's good. Yes. Looking forward to seeing her in part two. Yes. There will be a lot more of her in the next one. Yes. Uh, She's looking at him and, and really seeing him for the first time mm-hmm. and uh, seeing who he really is at the, for the first time. And yep. it's, a,
2: it's a nice little moment. Yeah. And they, they um, bag up Jamis to get the water out of his yeah. corpse. <laughs> um, and,
0: and Jessica is like, we got to get off world. And Paul says, no, we're staying right here. My road leads into the desert. I've yeah. seen the future, you know? And there's a, we don't, we, we can't talk about the second movie. We can't talk about Paul's journey in the second movie, but there's something really great about how this movie illustrates that as much as Paul is a character controlled by visions and destiny and prescience, he also makes choices.
2: And I would say, I would almost say that the choices that he makes define him even more than someone who doesn't have that prescience right because instead of it being like the future is a foregone conclusion and you know he doesn't have any agency it's like no he knows what the consequences of his actions will be yeah and he chooses anyway right um which in some cases uh, paints him in a in a positive light and in others which we will see will especially see if uh Denis gets to make dune messiah uh he, he really don't paint him in a positive light mm-hmm. um and and uh yeah just presenting him as kind of this flawed messiah character uh in that way is is, is very fascinating it's one of the things we love about dune yeah and i think uh
0: timothy chalamet does a great job of uh, selling these moments towards the end of the film here. Uh, even though his arc isn't totally uh, fulfilled and completed yet, we start seeing the breadcrumbs of that. I'm interested to see how he does in part two. Yep. And this is the end of the movie, basically. We carry Jamis' body through the desert as the sun rises. We get a shot of some dudes riding sandworms. Yep. Fuck yeah. Yep. Um, and the 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 music and the voices swell Uh, Chani turns to Paul and says, this is, this is only the beginning. And Paul walks on ahead. We get another look from Rebecca Ferguson as she sees her son, uh, sees the man that her son is going to become. Right. And the Fremen take off into the desert as the film cuts to black.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's, that's, that's Dune.
0: That's Dune. (laughs) We made it.
2: We did it. We did it. If you are still with us, thank you so much for listening to this long ass episode about dune uh we we did the best we could we really tried we didn't even talk about every scene there are scenes we did not touch on yeah
0: there's there's so many there's a billion details in this movie that i could talk about honestly Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah. And uh, there's there's so much to so much to talk about. We didn't even mention the hunter seeker. We didn't mention the hunter seeker at all. <laughs> um, we didn't talk about some of the things that were missing from the movie that we missing from the movie from the book that we wish were in it.
2: Yeah, there will be a whole a separate episode of this podcast only about the banquet scene <laughs> from the book. <laughs> That's not true. Don't hold me to that. We're not actually doing that. <laughs> all right, justice. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. Is Dune part one the greatest
0: movie ever made? David,
2: uh, I'm going to try and keep my verdict short because the episode is already long. Uh, That being said, uh, I had a great time with this. The first time I watched it was really blown away. Thought it was a very worthy adaptation to a book that I loved very, very much. The second time I watched it, I think it landed even better. Uh, It was even better uh, uh, revisiting it Um, and still plays insanely well at home, um, which is sort of impressive given that this is really a theater spectacle movie right um but on my couch uh on my moderately sized tv um still really get the the grandiosity um and the the scale of this thing it still feels very epic um even at home um second watch uh bumped it even higher for me and i was like this is a masterpiece um watching it again for the show this week i think it i wasn't as deeply moved by it as i was on the second watch which i think was my high point with dune but that being said the gripes i have with it are extremely minimal I think sometimes Timothee Chalamet's performance, like I mentioned earlier, doesn't always totally hit for me. Like, sometimes it feels a little too modern and maybe immature in spots. Um, not not immature, like, in the character. I just feel like he is maybe still growing as an actor. Um, and there's just a few moments where I sort of, uh, that sort of hit for me. Um, and then there uh, are also... Um, uh, you know it it does there's also the argument like this feels feels like half a movie because it is <laughs> right um so there is also that element to it where it's like okay like a lot of the stuff here in terms of exposition it's like it feels like we just kind of have to get this out of the way so that we can move on to plot <laughs> or uh and um also uh a lot of the plot threads don't feel fully uh developed or explored a lot of the character arcs feel like half uh e- explored because it literally is because there's another one of these happening um that be so all of that to say right uh it's a movie i love it's a movie that i do still think even though it played ever so slightly worse for me on this watch than on the last watch that i do think is a masterpiece um and you know what david dune part one Denis villeneuve's dune part one i'm gonna go ahead and say it's the greatest movie ever made um it's one of my favorite sci-fi movies uh period that has that has ever been made and i'm not as big of a sci-fi head as you are, but I enjoy the genre, and this is this is one of my all-time faves. David is Dune Part 1, directed by Denis Villeneuve, the greatest movie ever made. Man, um, you know, a lot of people said this book was unfilmable.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think this movie tries to take the book and distill it into a palatable, uh, pleasing experience for a PG-13 audience but I don't think it dilutes Frank Herbert's vision in the process. I called this movie a space opera earlier. It is a space opera. And by that, I mean it's an opera in space. Yeah. It doesn't dwell on the dialogue for too long. It doesn't dwell on the characters for too long. It casts its brushstrokes in big, beautiful, colorful strokes of, 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 of grandeur and majesty an emotional intensity with the music, with the visuals, um, with the, the the beautiful way that this movie is able to tell the nuanced and uh, extremely detailed story of Dune and the Dune universe through just a few words. Um, it is also immaculately paced. It is, it is also half a movie, and we do have to take that into consideration. Um, but I was watching it last night, and I think... This movie doesn't have a three-act structure. I think it has a Shakespearean five-act structure.
2: Yes, yes. Okay, so we're back to the Shakespeare thing. We're back thing, to the I'm, Shakespeare which thing. Which I'm glad we're back to. Three hours later. Well, <laughs> I'm glad we're back to it, though, because the, I, when I was doing my verdict, I finished talking, and then I was like, I forgot to fucking come back on the Shakespeare yeah. thing, which I wanted to mention. But I think you're right. I think it's like a five-act. It is like it is like Henry V. Yeah. <laughs> right? Is Is what this movie is structured like. Yeah. You know, it hits that
0: climactic moment in the middle of the movie with the fall of House Atreides and everything uh, towards you know the last hour of the movie yeah. is dealing with the fallout from that. Yes. It ends on a great moment with the fight between Paul and Jameis and a, a great character moment that's going to set Paul on the path for the future. Um It's, it's so uh, beautiful and emotional and evocative and, like I said, just steeped in grandeur and majesty on, on the highest level. Um, I haven't seen another movie like this, except for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And yeah. I, I truly don't mean that hyperbolically.
1: No, I, think and that's I don't a good say analog. that lightly.
0: Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's incredible. And you know what? I probably would have said this even if the second one wasn't coming out. Yeah i think if we only had dune part one and we never had dune part two because uh because it never got green greenlit or whatever um i would still watch the fuck out of this movie yeah i agree
2: and i would be heartbroken about the the unfinished uh story
0: but overall i'd be satisfied with what this movie does because justice i think dune part one's
2: the greatest movie ever made yep there it is (laughs) We sort of both knew that this is where this was going. Um, but I mean, we fucking love this movie. Before we, before
0: we finish, I do want to mention, like, there have been a lot of criticisms about the casting in this movie oh, being, yeah. uh, you know, slightly whitewashed. And I do think there are plenty of people who have, um, have their, their reasons for that. And I think that's a totally valid opinion to have. Yeah. I
2: think it's a legitimate gripe to
0: have. with And, this movie. and it's a gripe I have with the movie as well. Yeah. Uh, and, but you know, when I'm watching it, I'm not necessarily thinking about that. I'm not thinking about the scenes that aren't in the book, uh, that are from the book that aren't in this movie. I'm not thinking about some of the minor problems that this movie has. Uh, I'm just having a great time watching this movie. Yeah, so.
2: and to be clear, like the the cast isn't entirely uh, white, right? Yes, there are just some white actors in roles where maybe due to the uh, Arabic uh, cultural uh, influence that is very present in the world of those characters that maybe it would have made sense to have an arab actor in that role yes right like that's that's mostly what people have a complaint with right Uh, because there are a lot of fantastic actors of color in this movie giving great performances um so uh yeah in terms of hollywood whitewashing um it is not an egregiously problematic example but it is maybe like okay i love javier bardem as Stilgar, but like Maybe there's an Arab actor who could have done that just as good.
0: And the, the, the Arabic and the Muslim influences in the book uh, yeah. are uh, controversial, to say the least. Right. Um, And I'm interested to see how Denis handles that in the, the second movie. Yeah. Um, because they, they come into play a lot more in the second half of the film. Yeah. So not a, not a criticism that I, I have that I hold really true to heart. Yeah. It is a gripe that I have with the movie, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that
2: up. Yeah. before
0: we uh, before we close the episode yes so. thank you
2: for acknowledging that because it is something that i had intended to mention as well uh because yeah like not a huge problem with the movie but like just indicative of the yeah. problems that still persist in hollywood yeah. in terms of like racial equity on screen yeah so that's Dune part one the that's, greatest movie ever made that's right
0: yeah <laughs> uh, talk about the show tweet about the show tell your friends about the show we love the support we love you very much and justice yeah what are we talking
2: about next week next week Uh, we're keeping the Dune train rolling, baby, because you know what comes out this week and what we are going to see at an advanced screening tomorrow is Dune part two, baby. We're going to, we're going to be talking Dune part two next week on the show. Full spoilers. Full spoilers.
0: So come back after you've seen it. Full spoilers. We're going to get deep into it. It's probably going to be a little bit looser than... Other episodes, yeah, because we'll, uh, we we'll, can't
2: take notes in a movie theater, right? We'll only be able to watch this in the movie theater, so yeah, don't expect the uh, the rigorous play by play that you normally <laughs> get from us. It's uh, gonna be our first time covering a new release, that's probably not something we will do often, but this is such a, uh, a huge event for David and I that we felt like we had to jump on this one immediately,
0: yeah. Um, we, we couldn't like do an episode tied into do the release of dune part two and just talk about the first movie and the next week fucking talk about you know friday the 13th part four or something (laughs) yeah um so yes we will be keeping the train going so we hope that you hop on the sandworm with us next week for dune part two the spice must flow and the pods must too (laughs) until then we love you so much and as always
2: later later, dipshits. dipshits We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Greatest Movie Ever Made. Please remember to leave us a rating and a review and to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. We appreciate you supporting the show and spreading the word. Tell your friends to listen. Tell your enemies to listen. Tell your mom to listen. If your neighbor has an unsecured Bluetooth speaker, connect to it and play an episode. You can follow us on social media at tgmem_podcast, underscore podcast. And if you've got a movie that you want us to talk about, send us an email at thegreatestmoviepodcast at gmail.com.